Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson, and we're back um, with another podcast. We're doing part, I think, part four of the biblical anthropology series called How is Jesus Both the Image of God and the Image of Man? Um, this is a this will be an interesting one because I think this is actually one that I think a lot of people have probably wondered at some point or another in their faith. Um, but yeah. we will, I guess we'll just kind of jump into this question. So we've talked about men and women and their different anthropologies and their... Um, how the fall has affected them. But I think obviously now we have to talk about Jesus. And so let's just start at the basic, the basic level um, of that. Jesus was a man and not a woman, because there seems to be some, some movement in the mod in the, these modern times of like, God is a woman. Jesus was a woman, or I've heard like, some, you know, Jesus is like non-binary and all this, like God is non-binary. So let's just discuss the baseline, like Jesus is a man and not a woman. And why is that? Yeah. So I I think, okay, so let's, let me, I'm going to answer this by backing up just a little bit. And one is, is that that one of the, the reasons why this is an important thing to talk about Jesus is being fully human is because before someone becomes a Christian, the biggest question about Jesus is, is he divine? Like, is he God? Right. And then once you recognize that he is God, then you're like, okay, wait, if he's God, then how is he man again? Like, in what sense is he really human? And also, in what sense should that be comforting to me? Since even while he was being a human, he was also God. Right. Mm -hmm. Isn't that an unfair advantage to be God as a human being? Right. Yeah. And so I think, it's important to recognize that the church basically argued exactly what that philosophically meant for like 350 years. So it was not by any means a simple way thing to figure out, but it's important. I don't think people so much need a philosophical answer as they need like a practical feel of an answer. Hmm. They need to feel that the one that they are in this spiritual relationship with, that is Jesus, the Christ experienced and is fully human so that there's a real personal belief that he understands them, mm-hmm. that he experienced what we experienced and all of that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and we'll get to exactly why that is the case theologically. So to, so to get to Jesus being a man, <clears throat> let me answer sort of a progressive idea with a progressive idea. Okay. So this, so first of all, it's important to recognize that God, the father, even though he reveals himself as father and not as mother in the Hebrew scriptures is not an engendered being. Right, the the Holy Spirit is is referred to usually with the male pronoun, but in Greek there's what's called the neuter, which is um, ba- basically Greek already has non-binary pronouns, so to speak. Right, you can say, you can you can um, put an ending on a word that means he, you can put an ending on a word that means she, and you can put an ending on the word that does not specify. It just means mm-hmm. it or whatever. Whenever the Holy Spirit is referred to in relationship to his person. Usually the male is used, but there, there are, there are other situations in which it's not. So we say he, 
when we refer to the Holy Spirit, not because the Holy Spirit is engendered male, but because the Holy Spirit is a person. And in the English language, when we say the word it, we're assuming the thing is not, does not have a personhood, Uh, isn't a person, right? So when we say he about the Holy Spirit, we're not designating his maleness. We're only designating his personhood. Now, now someone could say, well, then can we refer to the Holy Spirit as she? And the answer is nowhere in the Bible is that done. Well, there's a reason that we use he also to show um, that it has some sort of authority, like in the complementarian way, where like it's kind of like at the higher end of the the authority hierarchy or something like that. You know, I don't. I mean, I don't think so. I think part of the reason is because the male. The male ending and the neuter ending in Greek are extremely are very similar. In some cases, they're the same. And so sometimes you have to guess or assume whether an ending is male or neuter. Hmm. So in some ways, um, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that would be the case. I, I, I would say one of the reasons why God reveals himself as father is because of the authority structure in the ancient family. Yeah, that's kind. Of, that and, was my question. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, but that, but we, I don't think we should assume from that 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 means God is male, huh. right? And it is true. Some feminist scholars have pointed out that there are a lot of times where God refers to Himself in feminine metaphors. He never calls Himself a mother. He, ne- he never says, "Israel, I'm your mother," mm-hmm. right? But He says things like he, he uses metaphors where He is in the feminine characteristic, and engaging in like things that are associated with femininity and even are feminine. So like, like mothering type things, like nurturing type things. Yeah. Or that yeah. I nursed you, right? Yeah. Like only mothers do that. Right. Yeah. Um, that's very feminine. And so even Jesus talks about like gathering chicks together, like a hen gathers them under his wings. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean he's saying he's a chicken, but that is a, that is a, a mothering. Like it's you're right. Like that's a very, a very nurturing metaphor. And that is a traditionally meta, um, feminine metaphor. So there's lots mm-hmm. of, there's numerous situations in God, which God refers to himself um in that part of it too is, is that many of the metaphors relative to God taking the masculine role is with Israel or God, his people taking the feminine role. Mm. So we are like the bride of Christ. We are the unfaithful wife. We are the right. So like the, mm. the human, the human people that God is relating to take the female position in, in him, the male. Right. Okay. So part of it is that relationship, but Jesus is really clear in, in John four that, that God is not, does not have a physical body. He's not engendered like we are as, creatures that mate and have offspring and so on. Right. And so um, even though we refer to God in the male gender, we refer to him as the father and there are lots, the primary metaphors related to God, the father are masculine. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that God is a man. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Does that make sense? And I think that's important for our sisters to know and for us to make sure we know. Right. So yeah, because I think that means that like when we say that everybody's created in the image of God, that that you can't just be like only men are created in the image of God. Right. You have to find out a way in which that also and and because God describes Himself in some nurturing feminine ways sometimes or he uses those right. ways, then it's 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 easier to say it's man and woman. Right, and then, and then the you, you get the, the result of believing that God is a man is patriarchalism because you have to believe then that masculinity is superior because God is a is a cre- is a being of perfections. And if he is masculine over being feminine, then we have to believe in some way masculinity is superior to femininity in its operational nature in God's character, right? And so therefore, 
the maleness is better, right? And mm. and that's something we need to avoid. And, and I think we need to avoid, right? Mm. Um, and so the differentiation of authority that we talk about in, in like male and female roles and stuff like that, that um, that is true between God and us for sure, mm-hmm. right? But um, but we shouldn't mistake God for being male. That's why Jesus being a man can be kind of a scandal to people, mm. right? And and real like and also like. When you talk about the authority structures, there is an authority structure within the triad or the the Trinity, not the triad. That's the Trinity of God and then Jesus and Holy Spirit, right? Like there's an authority structure there as well. That is hotly debated. Hmm. Um, whether the economic Trinity or the the that structure of relating. Mm-hmm. exists from eternity past or whether it's a function of the application of salvation, right? Hmm. And the manner of that submission. So I, I tend to believe, well, I don't really know the answer to that question. Um, there is a debate on YouTube between um, Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem. Oh. They take the reformed and complementarian, like, like, like the, that there is this relation of eternal relation of submission in the Trinity. And they debated Keith Yandel and Tom McCall, I think it is. Mm-hmm. So if you put that in YouTube, you'll get it. I think Yandel and McCall beat the living tar out of Grudem and Ware. And I am I am personally partial to Ware in Grudem's position. Part of the reason for that is Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem are both New Testament scholars, really. They're not philosophers. Oh. And Keith Yandel and Tom McCall are both analytic philosophers. And so like it's just not really a fair fight. Mm-hmm. Like they just they're just kind of talking past each other for half the time because the the reform guys are talking about the Bible and the yeah. other guys are talking about philosophy. And sometimes right. I'm not even sure they know what each other are saying. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, and that wasn't really helpful, but, um, but it was, it's very, it is very difficult to prove that the economic Trinity is eternal. So hmm. anyhow, um, but so, so getting to Jesus, right? Like Don Carson referred to this as the scandal of particularity, right? That hmm. if Jesus, if the son of God was going to become a human being, he had to be. He had to become either a man or a woman, mm-hmm. right? And so he's a man, and he had to be either a Jew or a Gentile, and he was a Jew, mm-hmm. and he had to be born either in the first century or at another time, and so he was born in the first century, right? Mm-hmm. He had to be either tall or not that tall, right? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like as, mm-hmm. he had to have either dark hair or light hair, or he had to have right. dark eyes or light eyes. He had to have, you know, and you could just like go right down the line, right? He had right. to either be handsome or not handsome. Well, the Bible didn't the Bible say that he wasn't particular, like that the prophecies said about him that he wouldn't be like a super, he'd just be like an ordinary guy, right? Yeah, since there's nothing in his earthly appearance that would draw us to him. Yeah, so right? maybe he wasn't like Channing Tatum or something like that. No, just, I don't. Like, I don't think he's probably. He probably wasn't tall. He probably wasn't handsome. Yeah. He probably wasn't. Yeah, he's he probably looked like a really normal person. Also, it's important. It's like in terms of class, he wasn't born among the rich. He was born right. among the poor. Right. Yeah. He he grew up in a obscure town, not an important town. Mm-hmm. Like in every in every way, Jesus had to be one thing or another, and he was the thing that he was. <laughs> and so, in that sense, like I think. This gets back to the whole. So, so when I said I would, I would answer a progressive question with a progressive answer, right? Yeah. The progressive question is why would God, why would Jesus be so particular and not more inclusive, right? And the answer is because of what the implication of intersectionality, right? Intersectionality teaches that we are the amalgamation of all of our roles or identifications, hmm. and the, the the thing is, is that the only way to have intersectionality is to be identifiable. 
right? To in your intersectionality be a man and not a woman, you, there has to be such a thing as a man and woman. You have to be one. Mm-hmm. To be black or white or Middle Eastern, there right. has to be such a thing. And you have mm-hmm. to be able to identify as it. The mm-hmm. fact of intersectionality that we can identify as all these different sub-identities that amalgamates into one larger individual identity makes the savior by definition, quote, non-inclusive. If by inclusive, you mean he has to be just like me in all these non-spiritual categories, mm-hmm. right? It is true that the savior is a particular human being, which includes him being male mm-hmm. and who clearly identified as a man, mm-hmm. right? And all these other things as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's true that like as a Gentile, like you're European for myself, like I have to identify with a Middle Eastern first century savior. Like if I don't, if I can't worship a Jew, I can't be saved. That's what it means. Like Mm -hmm. I have to give up my, my belief that intersectionally the savior has to be like me. And if I was a woman, there would be one more step in that. And listen, I grant that that's a significant step. Right. But I also think it's a more, it's a natural one. Like if one believes in complementarity of the genders, there is a certain kind of metaphor of the reception of submission of a male savior to a female Mm -hmm. person that I think is in some ways a metaphor that they can grasp just as like the, like I can think of, I can think of it in a a military metaphor. I know what it's like to have a commander Mm -hmm. and I can, I can understand Jesus metaphorically that way. I know yeah. it's like to have a father. Mm-hmm. I can understand, or an older. I have an older brother, so I can understand Jesus as an older brother, which Scripture refers to him as. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. So I think well, I think there's a benefit women get in yeah. the church being the quote bride of Christ. That's a metaphor they can connect with more directly than I can, mm-hmm. right? But it's still. I think they, it has, everybody has to make some steps. There was one thing. There was something when I was talking to Tom Flaherty from City Church, a different pastor, about. Um just gender roles in the church. One time he was, I asked him if he would ever have a female be his head, the head pastor. And he was like, no, I, he thinks that women can be pastors, but he said, no, I would never let a female be the head pastor of the church because basically like men, some, something along the lines of like head men, head male head pastors bring more men, which brings the rest of the family Usually, if you bring a, a female, it like won't so a lot of time or sometimes it won't bring the rest of the family. So if you get a man, it usually brings the rest of the family, which is I, I don't. It just made me think of that in relation to Jesus Christ. In that, like, if you can get, I mean, I've noticed like in my family and a lot of families I know, if, if the male is a follower of Jesus, usually the rest of the family is follows Jesus, um, which I think is is more proof towards a complementarian view of of these things. But I think that's something that people don't really like. Yeah, yeah I mean, I so the, like there's a lot of families, Christian families, where the faith of that family is driven by the wife. There's no question about that. I, in some ways, that's the way it 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 must be when women are more involved in the early nurturing care of children, like when, sure. if a woman in, in a household does 80% of bedtimes and right. bedtime is one of the quietest, most focused talk times of the day, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. then a lot of spiritual nurturing is going to happen there. Bible stories, but also just mm-hmm. conversations with the child. And so yeah. in a lot of ways, women are going to have that big, huge share. Oftentimes, yeah. even if men are leading the family spiritually, right. women are still doing 85% of the spiritual inculcation, which is exactly what complementarian says. Complementarianism right, 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 right. says, right? Now, my issue with Tom in that case would be, um, 
I don't like that view, right? That I won't let, I won't let a woman be a senior pastor because of the sociological implications. Well, listen, um, let justice be done in the heavens fall. Like, I'm like, I'm sorry that if, like, if something is right, right by scripture and truth, then it should be done. Like, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff I do in my Christian faith that I do to be faithful, whether the heck it turns out or not. So if I believe, if I wasn't a complementarian and I believe God wanted women to be elders, right. And that that was something. And that therefore, if I was an egalitarian, then I would say you have to consider women for senior pastor. Who cares what the men do? They're just sexist if they won't come. Right. Because I believe that there is a differentiation normatively in gender roles that we're supposed to embrace that are teleological to maleness and femaleness. I think what Tom is doing is he is intuitively seeing that complementarianism is true. Yes. Within a even um, egalitarian ideology. Right. And then he's trying to put the two together. Yes. And so he's doing something that I think is inconsistent because there's no such thing as a senior pastor in the Bible. There's only Mm -hmm. elders. This is a conversation I think we should have Tom on and we should have you guys hash it out because I think it'd be very interesting for people to hear um, that conversation. But I think I think for our female listeners in particular, the humanity of Jesus Christ had to be male or female. If you want to just chalk it up to the fact that in the first century, a female Messiah just wouldn't have flown. Yeah. I mean, on one level, you maybe you can. I mean, God is and does accommodate himself to where people are at. It's one of the reasons why he regulates slavery in the Old Testament rather than abolishing it. Can I say something really quick? Just at, back to the Tom thing. I just want to like clarify for people like like you can't like you came off as combative but you and Tom really respect each other because there's some people oh, who yeah. don't know who Tom is and just so oh, yeah, go back and listen to the guys... debates we had on yeah. earlier episodes. Yeah, yeah. Tom would not right. have had any problem with. Right. Well, he would just told me I was wrong and spit something back. Maybe we'll <laughs> yeah. do that sometime. Yeah. He's yeah. a wonderful godly leader in our city. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I think for women, you could say, well, maybe Jesus was just a man because in the first century. The Messiah would had would functionally have to be a man, just as God accommodated the regulation of slavery in the Old Testament until it could be abolished. Mm-hmm. Um, there are all kinds of things that in the Bible called divine concessions, right, where God concedes to certain places in human culture and takes it forward, hmm. but without dumping an ideological perfection on a human culture that can't metabolize it, right? That's why. Can you give an example of something like that? From the Bible, oh, the one the, the one I just did about slavery, yeah. Oh. Um, Divi- so, the divine so, con- concession. Yeah, so, so yeah. For, for example, yeah, so one divine concession. So divorce. Jesus says divorce is a divine concession. So in the Old Testament, divorce was fairly common. Hmm. And a- in all cultures, divorce was possible. And men could unilaterally, unilaterally divorce their wives. Okay. But there was this legal limbo women could end up in because th- whether or not they were free could be kind of in limbo, even though the man's running off with another woman. Hmm. And so Moses said, if you divorce your wife, you have to create a written certificate of divorce for her. And when you write that for her, she is free and you can never marry her again. Hmm. So the yo-yo relationships that a man could use and their authority in the ancient world were, were eradicated by this practice, right? So a woman, if she was divorced, she had a certificate of divorce. She could legally marry another person and he could never marry her again, hmm. right? That was a step forward from where things were. But when Jesus comes along, he says, Moses gave you that commandment because your hearts were hard. That's, that was never God's intention for marriage. Look at Genesis two, right? The two shall become one flesh, mm-hmm. right? He said in that, those that God has put together, let man not tear apart mm-hmm. in divorce, right? So what Jesus said was the only legitimate reason for divorce is adultery, 
right? That's what he claims. And then later in in First um, Corinthians seven, Paul talks about uh, circumstances of abandonment that equates to the breaking of the covenant as well, right? So there's like two like little caveats for divorce, but that's it for Jesus, right? And so that's very different. Like Jesus mm-hmm. like tightens that up a lot. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. In fact, in most moral categories, Jesus is tightening up the moral category rather than releasing it out. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Which is a difficulty for people who want to believe that Jesus was only against premarital sex in the ancient world because people got pregnant. That's, that, yeah. that really wasn't what happened. What happened is that sexual mores or the the way God revealed sexual ethics actually tightened up since the fall. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, a good example of Jesus tight, yeah, tightening up was just like if the, if if that were the case, what you just said about sex about sex would be. He would have just been like, don't lust and don't have, or he would have just been like, don't have sex outside of marriage, but he said you shouldn't lust. Or like, mm-hmm. instead of like, don't, don't murder, he said, don't hate. And so it just made it like, okay, now right. I have to control what I'm thinking about these things too. That's. Yeah. I think polygamy is another good example. By the time you get to the pastoral epistles, um, polygamy is outlawed for elders. So mm-hmm. the people who are considered examples in the church mm-hmm. can't have more than one wife. Right. And that, that put into practice that that was what we should be aiming for. Right. And so there are, so for example, a Christian can be a polygamist, right? So like if, for example, if we had a zombie apocalypse and 87% of the men were killed and we had to repopulate the earth and you are a Christian pastor and you're, and you're like, do I pastor these men to marry more than one woman? And these, none of these women have available husbands, right? You could in theory as a Christian say, yes, you can marry more than one woman. Oh my goodness. That sounds really weird. Right. But but here's the thing, but Christians (laughs) in normal situations are to be adamantly against Polygamy because of First Timothy one, First Timothy three, and Titus, and the New Testament teaching on um, the involubility of one man and one woman being yeah. married to each other and being co-partners. And, and sociologically, we we can see how the importance of that because in polygamous cultures, it's not the women who hate it; it's the men who hate it. Really, which sounds really weird. You'd be like, "What well, woman wants to share a husband?" Well, here's right. the thing: those women have available men they could marry. They choose not to marry them. In order to marry a man of higher status, they would rather be the second or third wife of a high status, wealthy man mm-hmm. than marry a non high status, younger man. They choose that. And then what happens is, is you, you get a lot of violence and unrest among these younger men who don't have access to women. Hmm. Right. I mean, that, that you see that play itself out with, with King Solomon. I mean, if you have 700 concubines. I mean, like it's to the be the seventh, he, he had seven hundred wives and three hundred concubines. Three hundred, yeah. So to be the seven hundredth option there, but it's still probably better than to be married to like some some right. peasant. You, you know? didn't marry some peasant, right? Yeah. You married a king, one of the richest right. kings in the ancient world. Yeah. yeah. And and there's a lot of women who like because remember, like even as far back, if you go back to like Jane Austen and Pride and Prejudice, that wasn't that long ago, and mm. like yeah, women wanted to marry for love, but they also wanted to marry for comfort. Yeah. Like who wants to be poor? Right. And there was a huge difference between marrying somebody who could provide for you decently mm-hmm. well. I mean, it is it really isn't until the 1960s that the attitude of like, well, I'm going to marry just somebody I quote love, mm-hmm. which is a misunderstanding of love. I mean, a lot of that like yeah. fiery passion is it like is an altered state of consciousness that exists for between eight it's and just 20 like months. Horny. It's you're just like super horny. It I'm is like super horniness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and it's it's also the excitement of feeling known for the first time by another person. Yeah. Right. So there's yeah. like this infatuation of like being known mm-hmm. again. Right. And yeah. that together with horniness and some other things mm-hmm. creates this like storm of emotion. Right. It's literally it's like a storm, like a number of things come together to create an unbalanced environment. 
Similarly, like your sexual drive, the excitement of being known, the excitement of something new, all these things kind of come together. You know, mm-hmm. imagining what your life could be like with this person, right. like the hypotheticals, all that comes together, to create this storm of emotions we call mm-hmm. love. But for the most part, that storm goes away in mm-hmm. a relatively short period of time. Yeah. And people, and so this idea that we should quote marry for that is kind of stupid. It's insane. Yeah. yeah. You should be, that's why I always say you should be looking for an adequate partner. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very difficult for, for people my age to understand because they, I mean, and, and we should have a podcast about that at some point about just like how much is too much um, emotional vulnerability outside of marriage. Because mm-hmm. I feel like, and it's weird, I feel like men in my generation are just throwing them. Obviously, the women are, but they're more prone to it, generally speaking. But mm-hmm. now, like, men are just throwing themselves at everybody emotionally. It's like, that, I mean, I call it emotional sex. I feel like everybody's just having emotional sex with each other. And nobody's doing anything about it because people can't look to the Bible and be like, well, it's not a sin that I open everything up to this person. You know, like it's yeah. a sin if you have sex with them outside of marriage. It's not a sin if I open up everything to them. And so that's a very frustrating thing. Which I, is probably false, right? Really? It, they're pro- well, they're pro- yeah. I mean, if you are – because if you open up so, – so generally speaking in, in – and like if so if you open up to somebody like that, right, you're creating an intimate attachment. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. that's the whole point of it. That's why it's exciting, right? Yeah. Right. If 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 you're if it's not exciting, you're not creating an intimate attachment. If it is exciting, you're creating an, an intimate attachment. In an intimate attachment, there is always a superior and an inferior if it doesn't last. Yeah. Somebody wants the relationship to continue and yeah. somebody doesn't. Right. Which yeah. means somebody's gonna abandon somebody. Yep. To create an intimate attachment with someone for the sake of pleasure and then breaking it is a clear emotional harm and injustice. And so how do you convince people that it's that it's not emotional? Like people will be like, well, this isn't emotional pleasure. Like I really love this person. Like how do you convince them? Love is emotional pleasure. I I think that you have to have. I think Mm -hmm. that you have. This is why I encourage people to to half decide who they want to marry before they go out on their first date. Right. Like (laughs) observe somebody. Yeah. Like be pretty certain of their character that they would be an adequate spouse. Because here's the thing. If you're a man and they're a woman and your sexuality is normative, right? Um, And you spend intimate time with them sharing, guess what's going to happen? You're going to fall in love with them. Like it's not hard. Like it's like that's what happens when two people really bear their souls to each other. They bond intimately Mm -hmm. and then their sexual desires drive them to bond sexually. In addition to that intimacy, those two begin to work together and it creates an intimate relationship. That's what that's what humans are made for. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. this idea that like, well, let's see if we have chemistry, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, well. You're going to have some, you know, mm-hmm. so you better know the person isn't a wanton or a twit before you get into that position. Because mm-hmm. once you're in love with somebody, you're just not seeing clearly, right? People who like get into relationships and then they go, well, let's see what happens. That's so idiotic. I mean, p- pardon my harshness, but like mm-hmm. you're, you are going to bond mm-hmm. like, and mm-hmm. so, and once you bond, it's like you've had two drinks, like <laughs> yeah. you, you're, you're, right. you're in an altered state of consciousness because yeah. you, you're drawn to bond with that person. It's too late to decide if they're the right person to marry. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or to be with long-term. Yeah. And so either you ride through some of the love yeah. stage until the pain of the inauspicious relationship becomes so much that it get, breaks through the altered state of consciousness of your devotion which is very a very i.e. a very painful breakup. Also, it's a very that's a very very dangerous decision to make. I mean, there's the argument. I think it was in one of these like Christian marriage books or whatever about dating 
like you should you should date for it says like you should date for 18 months because that's when the infatuation wears off and then you can like like at least 18 months and and it's like a yeah. christian book telling people to date that long and it's like well if you're infatuated for those 18 months you're gonna have long. sex with each other right. you're gonna you're gonna end up yeah, human sex. beings are not designed to yeah that's yeah I disagree. Yeah, I do too. And yeah. people, we should probably get back to Jesus yeah. as fully man, but Jesus wasn't focused on dating. Um, but yeah, yeah, you, yeah let's you can go. understand why he forewent romance in those ways. <laughs> yeah, right? right, right. So okay, so let's go. Let's get back to this. Um, to Jesus as. So I mean, is it safe to say that we can move on from the Jesus is, is a man, not a woman, or is there more on that that you wanted to talk? I hope about? so. I just think for women, one, you could either say it's just the scandal of particularity, right? God is choosing to make Jesus a man because that's what fit, right? Or 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 that fit certain mm-hmm. metaphors that he was using to convey himself to humanity, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or you can believe that, um, or you can believe that that was necessary in the in in how. God intended gender Mm -hmm. to point to his relationship with humanity Mm -hmm. and that um, women were going to be on the submissive side of both metaphors Mm -hmm. and men were going to be on the submissive side of one of the two metaphors. Mm -hmm. So women would be the bride in the marriage and also the bride and the bride of Christ. So Mm -hmm. the female position in both metaphors, the man would be the husband in the marriage representing Christ, but the bride in relationship to God. So the, so the male has to, has to be the God figure in the marriage, but actually be the bride figure in spiritual life. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it may be that it was better for Jesus to be a man in that because of those metaphorical considerations. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure, but it's important to recognize that Jesus is fully God and as fully God, um, I don't think as the son, he's quote engendered, mm-hmm. but as the man, Jesus Christ, he's a man. Yeah. Right. So yeah, we can yeah. move on. Okay. So, so obviously we have to talk about, so I, for the rest of the podcast, we'll kind of stick to two, to two um, ways of describing Jesus, Jesus, the son of man, and then Jesus, the son of God. And so yeah. let's start with Jesus, the son of man. And just by. I guess if you want to tell us what it means that Jesus is the Son of Man, capital M. I, do they usually do that in the Bible, capital M when they M when they say Son of Man, or is that just how you typed it? Um, a lot. Of, so part of it is the. Okay, so let me say it this way: in Greek and Hebrew, there are no capital letters. Ah. Well, let me say it this way: there is no capitalization. So the the idea of like having a capital letter and then lowercase letters that's not a thing. Yeah. Right. So in the the older Greek manuscripts are in what's called uncials, which is basically every letter is a capital letter. Right. Mm-hmm. Think mm-hmm. Um, Lord of the Rings dwarvish, like it's all the same size, you know. Yeah. And that's what that's what the, the ancient Greeks. You know, you're looking at a very old Greek manuscript if it's in uncials. Mm-hmm. Later, like fourth, fifth, sixth century, they created like a cursive lowercase that everything was in called minuscules or small, right? Small writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, anytime you see something capitalized in the Bible, that's a decision the translator is making. Hmm. So gotcha. for example, in the Old Testament, when the word Yahweh is used, right? That's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Mm-hmm. They capitalize mm-hmm. all four letters, and now you know the right. word behind that is Yahweh. Or but the L is still a little bit bigger than everything else. No, you know, it oh, is. It? It's, and yeah, in, in some type fonts, it is. That's true. Yeah. 
but all the letters are capitalized. Yeah, okay. All capitalized. When the word Adonai is used for God, which is like yeah. a generic Lord, right? They yeah. put they put uh, Lord capital L O R lowercase O R D, right? So yeah. in the way the way the transla- they translate the Old Testament in modern English translations is they'll use different capitalizations to tell you which Hebrew word is behind it if you pay attention. Hmm. Oftentimes they'll tell you that in the Bible's introduction. Yeah. Right. So when so when you see son of man capitalized, that is a decision the translators are making. When they capitalize it like that, what they are telling you is Jesus is referring to a particular set of passages in Daniel seven and Daniel eight, hmm. where there is a where Daniel has a prophetic vision. Mm-hmm. that God comes and he destroys all of these great beasts in the earth, which represent kingdoms. Yeah. And he makes a kingdom for himself in the, in the figure that symbolizes the leadership and lordship of that kingdom is it says it's someone who looks like the, like a son of man. Okay. And so like in this, in this figure is clearly God. Yeah. Right. So um, yeah. in Daniel seven thirteen it says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, that's the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. It shall not pass away and his kingdom will not be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> um, that's that's the main reference. In the other place, mm-hmm. Daniel is called son of man because he's a human being. Right. So there's two yeah. things son of man can mean. One is the son of man from Daniel 7, who is the... Um, fulfillment of the prophecies given during the exile of the Messiah who was to come hmm. and to be Lord over all peoples in spite of all the ragings of the kingdoms of the earth. Hmm. And that son of man comes after, comes during a fourth kingdom that is divided and different. And so if you work through those prophecies, it's Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Rome. So okay. Daniel prophesies before the Roman Empire exists that the Messiah was going to come during the Roman Empire, an empire that was going to be split into two, like one was going to be a pure and then it was going to split into a less pure empire. So mm-hmm. like the Roman Republic, the Roman Empire is right. Mm-hmm. So, and then this mountain would become like this huge, this little stone that broke the statue apart would become this huge mountain. And then this figure is the son of man, right? Who right. comes? So when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man repeatedly in every case he uses the definite article he says he is the son of man mm-hmm. he doesn't ever call himself a son of man or just mm-hmm. son of man it's always the son of man the son of man is anybody the son of man in the bible referred to as a son of man Compared to the like, would would yes. you know David be a son of man or something? Everybody like that? else, everybody yeah. else is. So the, the to person it. most so the the phrase "son of man" is in the Bible. I want to say it's like 189 times or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, 193 times, and um, most of those, like two thirds of them, are are God is God addressing the prophet Ezekiel. Oh. For some reason, he hmm. that's what God always called Ezekiel, son of man, do this, son of man, do that. Right. Really? That he yeah, and some people feel like Ezekiel is the most messianic um f- f- prophet figure. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but but there's there could be a number of reasons why he's referred to as the son of man that many times, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but he is like he is the human being. But like mm-hmm. there's a number of places where he is like the intercessor, the savior. So some people feel like it's actually an intentional messianic reference, but that it's really hard to prove that. Yeah. But one yeah. of the things that you find with like Muslim scholars and Muslim apologists mainly, they will say 
don't you see in the Bible, Jesus referred to himself as the son of man more than anything else. And hmm. that means that he believed he was a human being, not God. And that's a, that's a profound misunderstanding. So first of all, the, the fact that he uses the definite article means he's referring to a particular son of man who is the son of man par excellence above all others. But they're right to the extent that Jesus is using that title because the Messiah is fully human. Mm-hmm. Right? So right. That would be like a weird argument. Himself. Yeah, yeah. Why, why is that like a – why can't he be why, – why does it have to be – well, it's he says choice. he's the son of man. Yeah, and like he also did say he was the son of God and that he is a Messiah. So like those are yeah, two things Yeah, in some cases – right. So he claims to be the Messiah. He also claims to be the son of God, right? Right. And he, um, he also claims to be the I am. Yeah. Right. Which he is- also claims to be able to do things that only God can do. It's very clear to the Jews. Only God, like forgive sins. Right. He's right. like, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, only God can do that. He's like, yep. Now put that together, buddies. You know? Yeah. Right. right? Uh, so there's all that. Yeah. So it's very difficult to make the argument. But of course, if you're a Muslim and you don't believe Jesus is the son of God, then, right. you know, you're, you're you got to make confer- an argument. About yeah. It. Yeah. You, you know, you got to confirm your priors. Right. Yeah. yeah. So um, I, I think that it's a much better argument to try to argue that the gospels were corrupted. Because, I mean, it's your only shot. I mean, I, if, you, if you really understand the Gospels, there's no way Jesus isn't calling himself the Son of God. Your only chance is to say that the apostles made it up or something like that. Well, I remember when, I, like three, four years ago when I was first going to High Point, you were doing some sermon series on the Gospels and you talked about um, collusion. The, the, the Gospels, I, I don't know how, I just remember it being like a crazy sermon because I was like, because you talked about how people think that maybe the Gospels are kind of a collusion, that people, that the four um, of the people who wrote these Gospels kind of got together and whatever. And you made some points about the, like, color of red and then scarlet. And do you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah. what, what was that point? I can't remember that. I don't know that I can, I can um, refresh it here, but there's, like, the Gospels are... Right. So like you got to pick your poison, how you're going to attack the Bible. Right. Mm -hmm. So there are differences between the gospels and some of them seem like contradictions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Right. And there, but the problem is, is that if there were no contradictions in the gospels at all, then it would be collusion. Right. You'd be like, this is collusion. Right. So we can't trust these people. Well, which is it? Right. Like, is it, is it that they all got together and colluded or is it that they gave different descriptions and those descriptions seem to be contradictory in certain places? Right. Or, or. They knew that people would think it was collusion, so they got together and they create they created differences within it and contradictions within it, so that they couldn't be looked back at as people who made this big story. Right, and of course, this is these are all what are called post hoc arguments. Right, we're arguing after the fact yeah. about what we think happened. Right? right, so I don't think that happened, but yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think most of the scholarship is um, agnosticism and atheism in search of a solution. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. but, um, but, you know, you still, even if you think that people are making arguments in bad faith, I find that you still, you, it's best to give them a good faith yes. response. You yeah. Know? So I still try to give a good argument for it. Cause I, I think, I don't think these arguments hold much weight, you know, mm-hmm. Bart Ehrman and his, his work aside, but, mm-hmm. but I, so I think that the, the reason why Jesus uses this phrase, the son of man, that he's mm-hmm. the son of man is because a, if you understand the book of Daniel, He's clearly making a reference that he is the one the Ancient of Days has given all the kingdoms to and is the Messianic God figure. Hmm. And he is saying that that Messianic God figure is a human being, mm-hmm. is a son of man. Yeah. He's just the son of man. 
Right. 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 So the, the, this, uh, this title of Jesus, that he's the son of man, is designed to both demonstrate his divinity because it's a fulfillment of a particular prophecy. But the phrase son of man does mean human being. Right. Um, like a, ver- a like a, a really simple version of this is like the ve- just the very first reference to son of man in the Bible in the book of Deuteronomy. So, or I'm sorry, in Numbers 23, 19, it says this, God is not a man, is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Mm-hmm. He has said it, will he not do it? So like that, that clearly is poetic parallelism to say, to parallel son of man with man, mm-hmm. right? And he's saying God is not a human man and he's not the child of a human man. Hmm. So son of man means somebody who is a human being because they are the child or the son of a human being. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like referring to me as the, a son of Adam. Well, that's, I was just going to bring that up that, that, and I, I kept thinking about the Chronicles of Narnia and like the way that, um, the, the witch describes the Pevensey children is, you know, a daughter of Eve or a son of Adam. Right. And I don't know if that has anything to do with this, but that's just what I kept thinking about in this. And yeah. one, it's interesting because in Narnia, you don't think of like Adam and Eve being the, the people who started. I mean, you know that they weren't, it was, it was Diggory and Polly and whatever, right. but it was, it's interesting that, that they use son of Adam and daughter of Eve. So I, I just thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. But you keep No, going. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the point, the point of that was is to say that they were humans, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Cause the witch said the witch, uh, I can't remember if the witch or uh, the, or Tumnus, I think it might've been Tumnus. Who's like, you yeah. are a daughter of Eve. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. yes. He's like, he's like, wait, I, I don't mean to be, but you are in fact human. Yeah. And she's right. like, yes. Yeah. He's like, huh, because there are no humans in Narnia, right? Humans yeah. come from a different country. Well, was, was, was the witch a human? I mean, she was a witch. I don't know if that, is that. No, the, as... no, the witch in Narnia is a jinn from a, a different. Jinn. Okay. She's, she's like a, she's like a, um, yeah, she's like a magical creature from a, it, that's in uh, Magician's Nephew. Yeah. I can't remember. He goes, he goes into like another world and unfreezes her. Yes, yeah. And she right. kind of comes back to life, and then she, she con- comes in and tries to take over, because she has destroyed her world. So the world, there's, Prince, there's nothing left of her world. Where does Prince Caspian's uh, empire kind of come from? Where, where, where do they, because they're all men and women. Yeah, they're like, they're like a, yeah, they're hu- they're human beings, but they're, but they're human beings through a different creation story. And so, yeah. and so they, okay. they weren't referred to as daughters of Adam and Eve. Yeah, okay, Adam, gotcha. Adam mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I gotta read those Anyway, so yeah, so this idea, so Jesus is trying to show, so when Jesus, one of the reasons Jesus says the son of man so much is because it's the perfect title. Yeah. Right. It's the title of the, of the messianic God, right? But it's the Messiah God, but it's also, it's also a reference to being fully human. Mm-hmm. And Jesus, that's what he's trying to convey that he's, mm-hmm. he is fully human and he is, he's God. He is yeah. the Messiah. He is the, the savior. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, but so in studying that phrase, I think a lot of people don't really connect with Jesus humanity because they're like, yeah, I mean, like, basically he's saying I am the, like, I am the great king, not I totally get you. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. what people really want from Jesus is not, they want to know he's the great king. Right. Because they want to be saved and delivered. Right. Right. But they, when they're like, they find out they're infertile and they're crying. Yeah. And they're trying to turn to God. They want to know something of like the tenderness of Christ's humanity. Right. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, um, they don't want the they don't want the king per se in that situation. Right. Yeah, in in that sense, they're looking for something that's a little bit more feminine. Yeah, but yeah. um, but the 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 metaphor the Bible uses for that office of God, like that work that He does in our lives, He doesn't usually use a feminine metaphor. He uses the metaphor of a priest. Hmm. That like a priest is somebody who is supposed to be there to take you to God hmm. and to do what's necessary to get you there. Yeah. And the priest is always a human being. And so the priest knows what it's like to be human. Hmm. He, or he's supposed to. Yeah. He, and so in the book of Hebrews, for example, when um, the author is trying to explain that Jesus was created a little lower than the angels, that is as a human being. Right. Um, that the result of this was because he's so truly human, he can be a priest. Yeah. Hmm. Right. So, so I, okay. I think that, that's the, that's the like metaphor that's supposed to touch us the most deeply, I think. Yeah. And I, well, I, I do think also it would be important to discuss why it is like, I, I know we kind of discussed why it is important that Jesus is a man, but like how, what, what are like sort of applications come from that in how we can relate to Jesus um, as a fully a human being? Rather than us looking, because it's weird, you do have to look at him as he is God, but like part of the like he is a man thing forces us to look at him as one of us to some capacity, which means that, you know, when it talks about like that he was tempted in all the ways and that he can see our suffering and like he can, he can experience what we experience and he has and therefore like nothing, no challenges that we've been given, you know, he hasn't been been given himself. So how, how, why is it important in our relation to Christ? And I know you kind of mentioned that he can nurture us and, and there's, and there's ways in which he can yeah. really have a relationship. So, yeah. Let me, let me read, let me read some of these verses from Hebrews because I think it'll give people a really good context. And this is one of the biggest. So um, in the book of Hebrews, the first chapters, it, it presumes that people are kind of infatuated with angels because um, Jewish people at this period of time, it was fairly common for them to be into certain forms of spirituality and angelology. So like they're into angels. And so he's trying to say, okay, Jesus is better than the angels. Mm-hmm. And the way he became better than the angels or, or demonstrated or showed he was better than the angels was be, by becoming less than the angels. Yeah. Right? So, he's, so he says, there's a place in where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man that you care for him. See that in parallelism again, mm-hmm. man, son of man, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. That's Psalm eight verses four to six. He says, um, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that was not subject to him. Mm-hmm. Yet at present, we don't see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Mm-hmm. so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone In bringing many sons to glory. It was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hmm. Right. And then it talks a lot about how, like how Jesus calls us brothers and how he said, he calls us in that sense of his spiritual children. Right. And he says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, that is Jesus shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Abraham's descendants in that context means not Jew, not Jews, but all who are descendants of Abraham's in faith. That is, they believe in God's covenant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for this reason, he has become, he has made, he has been, he, I'm sorry, for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way 
in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the mm-hmm. service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Hmm. So like in that passage, you see there's a bunch of stuff. There's like how his humanity helps us with temptation, Mm -hmm. how his humanity allows him to die in our place because he's like us, Mm -hmm. how his, um, how he can be faithful and merciful to us as a high priest because he suffered. He was, he was a suffering human being. So when human beings suffer, he gets that. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's a, there's a number of other things, obviously, like he, he knows that it's like to have like a spiritual family. He knows because of that, he knows what betrayal is like. I mean, yeah. there's all, there's like, there's all these ways in which like all yeah. the rings of the, of human experience right. are connected to him. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. And so it, I know it's hard for people when they really get the sense that Jesus is God to say, okay, but Jesus is fully human. All mm. the things that are endemically human or, or totally human that I'm experiencing, Jesus experienced. It is weird because when you think, when you talked about betrayal, like Jesus was betrayed, when I just think about that, I think about the Bible and I'm like, when you read it, you don't really capture probably the emotion that goes into that because it's just like Judas betrays Jesus and Jesus is taken. It's just like one step after the next. And then I don't think about the fact that like Jesus, this is like one of his best friends and they're very close and... I don't know, just like probably how painful that was. I, I just don't yeah. even think about that. And that's probably the case for a lot of people who are just reading the Bible and just reading the words. I know that we talked about how like Jesus wept, um, but yeah. even that's just a short little, it's two words and then you just move past it. So there is yeah. something more to the, probably the the relational yeah. damage that was done in that situation. In that yeah. Case. So there are ways in which Jesus emotions expressed through like tears. Yeah. There's not a ton of time spent on them. Like yeah. Jesus is is depicted as weeping only a few times, right? Mm-hmm. Though he is called a man of, a man of sorrows. Mm-hmm. That is, his life was like Jeremiah's mm-hmm. in that it was like overwhelmingly sorrowful, right? right? Mm-hmm. But there is a way in which Jesus is not like us mm-hmm. in, in a way in which he does not, quote, identify with us in his behavior. Mm-hmm. And that is, is our wretchedness, like our sin. Yeah. Right? Like Jesus didn't sin every sin so he could know what it was like to be a sinner. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? That's like a serious argument from people too. They're like, well, like, you know, I'm thankful for, I hear people say, you know, if let's say somebody like drank a ton in college or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and like partied it up and they're like, they stopped and later on they're talking about it and they'll be like, well, I'm thankful for that time because now, you know, because I experienced it, I can, I can talk to people about that more and be a better example of them. And I, I kind of get what they're saying. But I don't think that it's good to be thankful for that stuff. That's like me yeah. being like, I'm so thankful that I watched a bunch of porn because now I can like connect can really with other men with yeah. <laughs> who watch porn. I just think that's, I think that's, I think I can identify with them good enough and be like, look, man, like I, I like, I really want to drink or I really yeah. think a bunch of like women are, yeah. you know. Yeah. Listen, God's use of your sin is a, an act of graciousness, right? Yeah. So he, he, it's not like, oh, I'm so glad you sinned so I can use this, right? right? Yeah, yeah. No, we like we made a crap show of everything and he is so artistic, so creative, such a good craftsman Yeah. as a worker of providence that he can make something good out of it, right? And that's great. Right. And, it, and, so, and so he's going to use what's there and the mm-hmm. fact that you have the experience is all, the, is all that there is that's good in it. Like yeah. the, the only thing to use is that, right? Right. Um, Kevin Van Hooser, I think, said it this way. He was a, he's a theology professor. He said, 
One of the reasons it's good Jesus didn't sin is because if he sinned, he would not have been the perfect um, experiencer of temptation. Oh, yeah. Because he said, think about it this way. When is temptation the worst? And the answer is, well, right before you sin. Yeah. And why is that? Because it, it steadily gets worse and worse and worse mm-hmm. until it breaks. Yeah. That's kind of how temptation works. Right. And so in order to experience the worst possible temptation, you have to not sin. Right. Right. And so... Um, so that just pressure just keeps building up and up and up, right? I mean, by the time I mean, he was well, like I mean, 33... Until it, until it doesn't, right? Like that's the thing about temptation is, is that it binds itself to our habitual mind. And so it makes it worse and worse. It's so like when people quit smoking... Right. Right? Like smoking really doesn't have profound physical side effects. It's not like getting a coming down from heroin. Yeah. Right? What you get is that little nudge, like, like when you want to have ice cream after 9.30 p.m. Yeah. Like, like you're not being hurt. You just have an urge. Yeah. Right. But if right. you don't answer that urge, it'll like repeat itself and it'll get a little stronger. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you could sometimes I've heard men talk about this when they are trying to stop masturbating. If they were doing uh, so regularly, like the urge to do that is like it feels almost unbearable for people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then but it, it won't kill you. Like you just gonna be like, look, and it's not even technically pain. It's right. just it feels like this overwhelming desire, even though it's not overwhelming. You've just responded to it so much. Your ability to say no is just very weak. Right. Uh, yeah. And so so what happens is if once you say no, it starts getting easier and easier and easier and easier and easier and easier and easier, and easier. Yeah. until same thing with cigarettes. After a while, it's, it's like 11 days and you're like, you don't even care. Yeah. Right. But people people believe it's really hard because they have not been successful. Well, is there some sort of like. Because I found that with myself when it comes to, let's just, I'll, I'll just say sexual sin. Um, it, 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 there came to a point where it was like, I, I, I felt like, I, this is very difficult to explain, but I like, you know, couldn't stop the habitual sexual sin, whatever, porn, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just so frustrated. But then I got to the point where, I, I mean, it felt like there was some sort of I don't want to over spiritualize things. That's what I'm trying not to do right now. So because I think that's I don't want to be that way. But there were there came to a point where I was just like I'm so sick and tired of this, and I just like prayed a whole crap ton, and then like just it was very intense. And I you know read through Galatians, and then I listened to Matt Chandler, and it was all this stuff, and it like really just like changed. I guess kind of in some capacity, like overnight, changed my entire perspective and i felt like i had the strength over these things now i know that's not how how it works but since then i've i've it's been fairly like really good and what the heck happened i i've tried to figure that out like i don't know what happened because i spent like years trying to stop you know right yeah that's one of the things i think is important to like with younger men instead of catastrophizing certain sexual sins even though they're they're pretty bad in a certain way to say, this is a great opportunity for you to fight a real fight in your life mm-hmm. and take control of yourself. Right. Because one of the things I notice is, is that not just Christian men, but men who can't overcome sexual, I'm just going to call it perversion because some men won't recognize that it's sin, but they do <laughs> recognize that this is not how they were meant to interact with femininity Yeah, is watching somebody's fake boobs on a screen or people having, watch right. people having sex on a screen and having, having some right. kind of sex with themselves. Right. With lotions, you know, <laughs> like that's, that's yeah. not what they were meant to do or who right. they were meant to be. Right. Yeah. And so, and so it's demoralizing for them. You can like see it in their shoulders and on their yeah. face that they just don't feel like men because they can't, 
they can't control or embody their own sexuality and it feels so demoralizing. That's what and I was going to say. Like, like, listen, like get control. Like, And then, then what I find is, is that it forces you not just to like engage in self-control relative to your urges, but it, you have to become a bigger person. Mm-hmm. Like as a, you have to become a more substantial human being than the visceral sensuality of your sex drives. Yeah. Well, who is that person? Is it a person who loves Jesus the Christ? Is it a person who wants to be a husband and a father? Is it a man who knows who he is? Is it or right? Or so it leads you positively to grow as a person, but then also you, one of the reasons you got into that sexual repetition to begin with is either you just kind of like fell into it because that's what everybody does, which is very common for men now. Right. But if you find that it's not very easy to break, it may also be because you have some kind of wound that, that is being filled by this repetitional action right. well for god's sakes like that's needs healing yeah i think right? that so was like it forces thing, you yeah. to get healed too right or to pursue that healing which is a right. journey right. but you'll never start that journey if you're still you know well and i think i think for myself what ended up happening was that it was it was it became like a i think god was trying to test me like a, in a, a practice in humility i think he was kind of just like you got to confess all your sins to me. Like in a way that I, I didn't know totally. Under, I, and I, and confession to God is very like weird to me. Like I can easily tell my friend, like people and my friends, like, Oh, I did this and that. But when it comes to like talking to God about it, it was always weird. And then, and then I had to learn through that, which I think is a, is a, is a place of, I guess I just had to be humbled because I was like, I don't want to tell God these things. So, which was yeah. a form of healing, I think. Into some so was capacity. it because you thought, this is stupid. God already knows. Or is it just because you just didn't want to do it? Partially, I think, because I was, I was like, yeah, he, like, he does already know this stuff. And also, like, I, I just felt like I was like, I don't feel like God really wants to hear it. Like, I feel like he doesn't want to. I th- feel like he just like, OK, dude, like, I, I, yeah, one, I already know that this happened. And like, I set the bar here and you always come up short. Like, and and it was this whole thing of like, oh, like Andy effed it up again. And I just. I was just like sick and tired of, you know, cause I would pray after I sinned and I'd be like, God, forgive me of my sins. But it wasn't genuine at all. It was just kind of like the practice of like getting that little prayer out of there so that I can kind of have a little bit of peace of mind. Um, and then, and then go back and do it tomorrow or whatever, you know, I, I just didn't yeah. feel, I didn't feel very, I think I had to learn that like God actually, like he actually really did care about me and he cares about when I sin like it's very, very deep, like very deeply. And I'm, I'm hurting him in, in ways and myself in ways that he, like, I don't know, like seeing God as somebody who like, but would, you've, have you confessed to people before when they knew you'd sinned? Like when you apologize, it's pretty rare that you're alerting somebody to the fact that you sinned. Right. Yeah. Are you what, acknowledging to them that you know what, you know what you did? Yeah, like you're yeah. saying this was this, and they're like, yeah. "Yes, it was." Yeah, right. Yeah. I think confession to God and to others, frankly, yes, right. is usually a form of acknowledgement. Yeah, which is both restorative. Yeah. Yes, right. Because you're like, like if you have a fight with your wife, she knows what you did, right? Yeah. And you're like, "Baby, I'm sorry, I did this," and she's like, "Yeah." Hopefully, she won't say, "Yeah, you did." She'll be like, mm-hmm. "Thank you for apologizing," because yeah. you acknowledge it. So, like now, your relationship can move forward because you acknowledge that right. what you did was wrong, and you're both agreeing on how you should be treating each other, right? But even more specifically, you like for me, it was you. I acknowledge the specific thing because I would always try to cover it over with like, right. like God, sorry for like sinning, like and and not like yeah, God, no, sorry but- for doing the specific thing. Thing that I know is wrong and you say it's wrong. And then when I started right. doing like when I did that and I and I got real specific with like all the things with God, it felt like 
it did feel like there was like forgiveness and grace and all those types of things that people talk about. But I had to get specific. I had to kind of be honest with myself and I had to be honest with God and kind of say, like, put those those things I did into real words that he could hear. And so that was. Yeah, I think that there's two, there's a couple reasons that's super important. So if you're listening to this, if you're younger, especially, but this is good for everybody is apologies need to be very, very specific yeah. and totally mea culpa. That is, it's my fault. I did X. Now, if you're in a situation where you think you were only 50% to blame, then don't say that. Just apologize for your 50% and don't refer to anything else. Yeah. I did this. Be very specific. I said this. And Mm -hmm. when I said this, I was intentionally trying to intimidate you so that you wouldn't argue back and so on. Right? Like you get really, really specific. And then you say that was entirely my fault. Yeah. And I'm really sorry. And it is my my, my desire to never do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. If you want to have good relationships, that's how you apologize. Right. Right. No, I agree. Yeah. And and there's two reasons why that's important because the other person really feels valued. They know you have a shared personal culture so that you can proceed on agreement. There's intimacy. Right. And the humiliation is really good for you because you don't want to have to do that again. Oh, and it's the full pain of it. Right. And it's something you don't want to be that person. I do believe that it can set the tone too. Like it can yeah. set the tone as an example of like, if we're going to start, if we're going to f- apologize and we're going to confess things to each other and talk about what we did that hurts each other, then let's not talk about it in the most ambiguous way that we possibly can so that we don't have to deal with it. Let, let's all like agree, like let's all do this. And I'm going to start by practicing it first. I'm going right. to be very specific about exactly what I did and apologize for that. Yeah. And if they don't apologize, don't say anything then. Right. <laughs> Wait at least two days. Don't retract your apology. Or yeah. yeah. Take it back. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. like, cause, because that's not the point. The point is, is no matter if anybody ever apologizes on the entire planet earth, right. Mm-hmm. You should acknowledge the truth about your life yeah. before God. And the truth right. is you did something wrong and you right. hurt another person. And that should be acknowledged. You should acknowledge it because, and that's the only way you can regain your honor Yeah, and create intimacy and ex- experience the humiliation that can lead to humility and growth. And that's incredibly important. Like, yeah. And so there, there are ways in which Jesus, like as being fully man, acknowledge praise to God, says things that God already knows and that he already knows, but these, but they were acknowledgements that he thought Mm -hmm. were important. Like when he prays at Lazarus's tomb, he's like, listen, father, I know you always hear me, but it's for all these people that are watching right now that I'm praying to you, that you'll, Mm -hmm. you know, that you'll give life. You all, you know, You'll do what I say. And so, right. and so I know that when I tell him to come from the dead, he will. Yeah. And there's, I, sometimes it annoys me in prayer meetings and stuff like that. When people tell God stuff, he surely knows. Yeah. And the way I yeah. do that yeah. is I say, instead of telling God something about himself, I say, God, um, we confess this conviction. We believe. Mm-hmm. So I turn it into a profession of faith, right. Mm-hmm. Um, or an acknowledgement of what we need to believe. I do have a quick question about what you, what we were talking about in terms of talking to people about um, specifics and things like that. There have been so times when you hate, like when Jesus says, "Don't hate your brother because you've don't don't hate them because it's it's essentially murder," or "Don't lust because it's it's adultery." Um, yeah, I've had people who told me that they hated me in their heart, and it was very very good for them to tell me that. And then there was a lot of like healing that came from, I mean, like Nicole was one of those people who just hated me when she first met me and then realized that I wasn't as bad as she thought I was. Um, 
after a little while and, and realized that she, I was as bad in some ways too. Uh, but how, like, what's the threshold for this? Um, telling people, you know, if I like, you know, if I, I can't just go be like, okay, I lost that to this girl. I can't just go meet with yeah. her and say that. Yeah, you I, know? Wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> That's a terrible idea. But there's what's the, well, how do you, how do you get, how do you get healing for those in, internal things that you do in your mind? Yeah. Um, that has yeah, to do with somebody I, gener- else. I mean, generally speaking, I would not confess to a man or a woman that I, that like I had engaged in some kind of sexual impropriety like that, unless it was extremely obvious that they knew it. Yeah. And that I wasn't sexualizing the relationship. Ah. In most cases, you'll be sexualizing the relationship. It'll produce really terrible outcomes. Right. Would you do it for hatred? Would you? I might. I have oh. in certain cases. Okay. There's an elder on our elder board right now that just drives me nuts sometimes. And he's actually a very good man. Mm-hmm. But he is just like so fastidious about some things that just annoy the heck out of me. Yeah. And um, I, you know, I've had to say, listen, I have been really upset at you. Mm-hmm. Um and I know that you're doing these things for the right reason. <clears throat> and I'm trying to I'm trying to have the right emotions, but I'm sorry when because I know my annoyances come out at you and then i'll like name a situation i'll be like this situation this situation i i'm sorry that that came out like that i'm struggling with this and i'm gonna get better yeah. as i get to know you more and as i come to respect you more i know you know like the more i knew he was doing it for the right reasons right. the more i could accept that he's idiosyncratic he's different than me and i just have to learn to love him yeah. you know um but it's harder <laughs> it, when you hit our our struggling with hatred over somebody who's malicious yeah you know yeah but that's one of the reasons why we can serve as confessors, that is people who receive confession for other Christians. Hmm. I, when, it, when it says confess your sins one to another, I think yeah. it, I don't think it necessarily means only your sins against each other. Yeah. I think that like, I, I think having like an accountability partner or a mentor yeah, right. that you confess your sins to, I think even, even though like high church relic <laughs> Roman Catholic and mm-hmm. Orthodox thing where they have confessions, the right. more I've talked with priests and priests in the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church about it, I was like, okay, so what do you really think happens? Like, do you think it's like the sacrament where the blah, blah, blah? And they're like, well, yeah, but it's also this like really human spiritual experience of like acknowledging, right. saying the direction your life has been going, yeah. like, you know, acknowledging which what you wish you would have done better. Mm. Like, it's also kind of like a, a acknowledgement therapy session right. too, mm-hmm. you know? But you also acknowledge receiving Christ's forgiveness, and which so is real. I, th- I think there's people on two ends of that spectrum. I think there's people who have a really difficult time confessing to other people, and then there's people who have a really difficult time confessing to God. And I do think that e- both are probably equally as. I mean, it's, do you think it's more important to confess to God than it is to uh, whatever? That doesn't really matter. But I found myself to be like it's, it was very easy for me to tell people things that I've done wrong. And it was very difficult for me to tell God that things I've done wrong. And I feel like there's some people out there who probably are similar to like, yeah, yeah I can tell people that I, you know, watched porn last night. But like I, when I have to talk to God about it, I don't even know where to start. And so this yeah. is – I think this ties in with Jesus being fully man and fully God because I think for some people it feels like, like – like you say, like why would I tell him this? He already knows. Also, like how yeah. could he understand? Right. And like, Jesus has never been addicted to porn. Yeah, yeah, right. But but part of it is like there are sins that I have not committed that I hear confessions about. Like people will come to me and tell me they've done them. And I can feel compassion for them because I've been tempted in every way in that thing. So like I've never committed adultery. Like, you know, knock on wood, right? Um, 
<laughs> you know, Lex and I have this rule that we're never more than 30 days from an, an affair in our relationship, hmm. right? It's just like these things can sneak up on you and you have to constantly be working on the intimacy of your relationship. And that's not to say that we have a model relationship, but um, we have one that we're always working at, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. in God's grace, we I've never had committed adultery, but I, I've been tempted. Mm-hmm. I know what it's like to have feelings of desire and devotion towards mm-hmm. people I've worked closely with or mm-hmm. like really godly women that I've spent time with. Right. Even mm-hmm. though, even if those relationships were never sexualized, mm-hmm. like there was never them knowing I could be, I would be attracted to them or that they would be open to me advancing. Right. Yeah. Like I still felt those emotions and I, right. it's not, it's not hard to use human imagination to be like, what if she, she just had said one day, I like, Nick, would you just hold me? Yeah. Right. Like some, no. some, this woman and I like, what would I have done? Would I have been like, um, <laughs> no. Or like, <laughs> yeah. And like, I, like when these right. people tell me their story and I'm their quote, their high priest in the flesh, so to speak. Yeah. And they're like, and they're like telling me, hoping that I can stand in for God and say the truth that they want to believe. Mm-hmm. That in Christ they can be forgiven and have a new life and they can walk away from this and they can pursue some good moving forward. Yeah. Um, I know I feel compassion. I don't feel judgment. Yeah. yeah. You know, and yeah. I feel like the more I've be- I've grown in touch with my humanity and the frailty and wretchedness of my human existence, the more I've experienced Romans seven, the more I I just people don't confess sins to me anymore where I am like you terrible person. And even sins that are horrible that I have never committed, like molesting children or mm-hmm. killing someone yeah. or, um, or just horrible events. Like a pilot, I, a pilot told me not that long ago that he ran a bombing run over Iraq and uh, he blew a 16 year old girl apart. Huh. Right. He hit his eight targets, but there was also the collateral damage of this 17, 16 year old girl. And it like, it, it wasn't murder, but it was, right. it was civilian casualty and it, he was just yeah. torn apart by it and i've never done that right, right. but like i felt it yeah really right. deeply right as his priest so to speak mm-hmm. and right so i don't think i think that a lot of people believe in their hearts that jesus has to have sinned to be a good high priest for sinners and that's not true hmm. that, that what, what god says is no i allowed my christ to be tempted in every way so he knows what it's like to be right. torn apart inside. He knows what it's like to be mm-hmm. like, feel out of control, to feel wretched, to feel weak, to feel all that. Mm-hmm. But he was without sin. Yeah. So he's felt more temptation than you've ever felt. Right. And he knows what it would be like to fall into it. And he knows how easy it would be to fall into it. And yet he right. didn't. So yeah. he can both be your atonement yeah. because he never sinned. And he can be your real confidant mm-hmm. because he felt every temptation and can identify with them. Right. Right. And I have, I have very few people who say, you know what? You can't identify with this because you've never done it. Hmm. Like you've never been a prostitute. Right. You've never like had sex for money to pay your bills. Right. So like you can't know it. But I, I was like, no, but I, I, I know what it's like to not have enough money. I know what it's like to be willing to be pragmatic to get what I need. I know what it's like to treat sex cheaply. I know, like I know all the pieces Yeah, yeah. and it's right. not hard for me to put them together in my heart right. and mind and know right. what it's like to be you. And to have decided to do that. Right. And to regret it now. Yeah. You know I, I think, mean? yeah, no. And I think that that's something, uh, the one thing that I wanted to talk about on a different podcast, I think we should sit down. It's just within this whole image of God thing. I think it's, 
I think to some capacity, the, some of these conversations about the image of God has, and I've just been thinking about it more because that's all, all we're doing podcasts on right now for this um, for, for the series. In yeah. some ways, I think it's bothered me because I'm like, okay, I, I, it feels like the the ground base level for how we should view each other in terms in relation to justice should have less to do with the image of God and more to do with how we're all like wretched human beings. And, and that's how we can, in some capacity, like, like, like you just say, you don't have to like fly a bomb, like fly a plane over and, and, and bomb and kill a civilian to under, to understand some of the the depth of the the weight of that because you've also sinned in other ways and so you understand sin and I, I've 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 had I just had such a hard problem with the image of God thing and I and, and I was going to say we should do a different podcast where we just where we kind of go back and forth on that because I can't I I can't it's hard for me to believe that justice relies on the image of God rather than the wickedness of men. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think that the, I think you've got an, you've got a um, equivocation fallacy there between what men and women deserve positively and what structures you would put in place to to attempt to approximate justice, right? And so, if you yeah. put together if you put together a system to try to to try to get as close to justice as you can, well, you're going to have to have a system that deals with wicked men and women. I mean, this is this is this is why cops and social workers don't get along sometimes, mm-hmm. because social workers are like these people could be good if we just made a good environment, and the cops mm-hmm. are like, no, a lot of these people are just freaking dead straight evil. Yeah, right. Like they're gone. Mm-hmm. Like they have left the good person building. Yeah, and they don't want to be a good person anymore. Right. You know, and they're both right. Like on yeah. one level, like the social worker is right that like. They, these people have the image of God. They could be a great and beautiful thing. And the cop is also right. There are some people who choose evil mm-hmm. and they don't want to choose good anymore. And you have to fight them with money, guns and lawyers. But it right? feels like um, the so it, it feels like the good the, the people who could be good like that can only be done through Christ and, and Christianity. And it's, it's been something that, that now to be like, good being, like God. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and but there is common grace. There's common grace for justice and common, um, what you might call common or natural virtue. That is like, the, like God has set up the world. This is Jonathan Edwards, right? God has set up the world in a way where our flesh has certain motivations to not be as bad as we could be. And that's mm-hmm. called common virtue, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's ways that we go along to get along. Mm-hmm. And we're quote good people. That's yeah. different than true virtue, which is to be good for God's sake and therefore for goodness's sake. Right. right? And, and to live at, like Michael Matheson Miller said, according to, according to reason, right? All of God's commands are God's commands, but they're, they're his commands because his reason is perfect. And he commands us according to reason that which is, is truly good, true, beautiful, just, and honorable. But right? should Christians try to create a just society based upon natural law or like God's like law. And I know those things are the same to some, like, it, right. and, but it's just some capacity, but I, I was talking not, not being in more in the political realm. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day who was a Catholic and they were frustrated. The, the guy that I have a podcast with called his name, Dr. Scott Jensen, and he's running to be the governor of Minnesota. And he's, yeah. uh, he's a Republican and he's a Christian. And, um, he, he made a statement about divorce that didn't totally, um, like totally condemn divorce. Um, yeah. And this Catholic friend of mine was like kind of frustrated with that. Like he didn't condemn divorce. And I, I was kind of like, well, it feels like 
he's, you know, there's a thing where Paul says that we shouldn't hold people who aren't believers accountable, you know, for these things, for things that we hold believers accountable for. And so like, where do you draw the line in terms of justice? I think you have to draw it like within like the natural law, where it's like, you can't murder somebody and stuff like that. And if you're a Christian, I think in politics and injustice, you should try to incentivize things that are good, like marriage, like the family. But it's, it's difficult for somebody like that to come out in the political realm and be like, if you get divorced, whatever, you know, like the, the cat, like the, yeah. like if you get divorced, you suck or like you should never get divorced because one, you're never going to get voted in. Cause there's a lot of divorced people. <laughs> and two, like that, I don't know if we can hold people to that standard. I think, I, and so it's difficult for me to say, where does the line drawn on like on justice and what should that line be drawn upon um, in terms of, of, politics and policy and how we decide to talk about these things as Christians trying to interact with the, the political world. Yeah. That'd be a great podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think, yeah. I, so I'm trying to think of how, if I can relate this to Jesus being fully human. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think it's true that Jesus, all of his commands are in accordance with the natural law. That is if that we could understand yeah. the world as it really is. And we reasoned in accordance with true reason to that, which is good, true, and beautiful. We would have a list of propositions that would all Mm -hmm. be true. Mm -hmm. And some of them would be, would seem like minutia. Like Mm -hmm. you should always be courteous. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's true. Everybody deserves your courtesy. Right. Right. But if we tried to like give people tickets for not being courteous, that would, that would be unhelpful. Right. (laughs) Right. And so, um, there is a certain kind of justice that has to be relational in nature and it has to be enforced by um, culture. Mm -hmm. And then there's other stuff that has to be adjudicated to restrain the evildoer. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so every society has to make a distinction. Where do we stop? Mm -hmm. Right. And I think this is one of the problems inherent in progressivism too, right? Like there's a version of conservatism that says we should have absolute comprehensive, like Christian values, let's say, or yeah. traditional values right. that govern everything. The right. problem on the progressive side of things is progressivism, in order to really work, has to control everything. In that sense, it's like communism. Yeah, it, it the more the more communism. you give people freedom to do what they want, they will act in unprogressive ways. Yeah, right. Because they'll act to live their own life rather than for the perfect utopia where everybody has to be totally involved in the beehive. Right. right? They'll be, they'll act in their selfish the, right. for selfish. They'll, they'll want to they'll drive their car to their yeah. vacation. And leave a carbon footprint. Like even like Al yeah. Gore flies in planes, right? Like and right, it's not because right, he's yeah. this terrible person. It's because he has a personal life and he has a public ideology. And he, right. and and he and he's, got, both. he's got places to go too. Like right. if he wants to, yeah, if he wants right? to get his like, message out there, he's got to, he's like, got to like get it out there. Are like, do you know that Al Gore has air conditioning in his big house? Well, Al Gore has a lot of money Yeah, and he lives in Tennessee. Okay. Right. Like who would want to live in Tennessee in a big house without air conditioning? Like nobody. Right. 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 So yeah. like, yeah, he should get some solar panels, but like, this is the nature of like what, what you, what would quote create utopia. Right. Right. Like people don't order themselves towards this ideological perfect out there that people right. don't even participate in. Right. Yeah. So in that sense, like progressivism in order to work would have to be fastidious too. It would have to govern right. everything. Right. Right. Like, like for example, it has to tell you that if somebody says they're a woman, even if they're a physical man, you have to say that they're a physical woman Yeah. because otherwise, even if they're free to be act, 
say they're a woman, get a driver's license that says they're a woman and all that. If you don't do it, then you don't allow for their psychological flourishing. See, now we're governing psychological flourishing. But the human mind is very strange, right? So so you'd have to govern everything. And so both progressivism and cultural conservatism have this problem of like, well, wait, but that's going to create a terrible society. (laughs) Like nobody wants that. Right. Not, not in relationship to them. Well, nobody – that's the thing. I, I think it's like we can say nobody actually wants that like at the end of the day. But there's so many people who actually want that now like without understanding what that's going to produce. Right. Like, well, and, yeah, and, but that's because they don't know what's really going to happen. Yeah. And so I was talking to people probably They realize they're going to be poor, for example. Yeah. That, their, that their wealth is going to be cut by two-thirds. They and they're not that. Yeah. They're right. like, or, no, let's get the new light bulbs. Let's do the green thing. You know, it's yeah. Like, well, yeah, except – it's right. not going to work. Like Let's that's buy not battery cars and like, the battery. Your wealth comes from oil. Yeah. Like, right. Like, almost half of your wealth comes from right. the existence of oil. Right. right. Like everything, like, like all this crap people could buy now that their house is just full of all this crap. They don't need that They like, <laughs> right. The reason they can afford that is because of international shipping. Yeah. And the, in the like incredible advancements in international shipping over the last 40 years. That's mm-hmm. why China mm-hmm. could become this incredible industrial manufacturing center and why we can get all this cheap crap. All of that is run by oil. Right. Every last right. bit of it. Okay. So like you take that away and you, I mean, you think we've, we've experienced supply chain problems now. Right. You have no idea. Well, that's Can you the imagine crap. how long it's going to take ships to get over here right. on like solar power? That's the crap that happens though with people now is that they like with the gas prices and things like that, or it's like we like you know, we're, we will not drill in the United States, but who cares if they do it in the Middle East? Like, like the the whole yeah. Let's buy, let's it, buy Russian oil, right? If it's not by yeah. me, then if it's not close to me, and I don't have to look at it, then it doesn't matter. But I want to ask a question about the, right. Which in, in what and we're concerned with global climate change, right? Yeah. So you can just see that they're not being honest. Well, and Jordan Peterson right. was like, he was like. He's like, what is climate change? He's like, climate just means like everything. So yeah. if you're going to say climate change, he's like, what, what are you even talking about? Because it's so ambiguous. You t- you mentioned like, and this is something I think that needs to be talked about in 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 this whole image of God thing. Because I was at High Point a couple of years ago, maybe a year ago, a year and a half. And I was talking to people about gender pronouns and um, just like, should, should Christians... Um, should Christian, should, yeah, like if somebody says I am a I identify as a woman, but they're a man. Like, should Christians be like, okay, I'll respect that and call you um, yeah. a woman? And I was like, and I was, with, and this was in a group of millennials, so you you can already kind of tell where this is going to go. But I was like, no, I am not gonna, I'm not gonna call them a woman, and I still believe that I will not call them a woman. I, I if it comes down to it, like I, I don't know if I ever refer to somebody as like woman or man. I don't look up to somebody and say, hey. I do say, Hey man, but I do that to girls too. But, um, I was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to accept their pronouns because it seems like a, a direct, uh, I feel, it feels like it's completely dismantling, um, their, their, the image that God created them in, in some capacity too. Yeah. And, and like, dude, these people could not, they couldn't accept that answer, man. They did not like, yeah. that's not the loving thing to do. And I was like, yeah, trying to on. balance the law of courtesy with your obligation to not participate in a shared lie mm-hmm. is difficult. Yeah. 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 And so you what know. does that relate to the, the image? I mean, to the, to the image of, of God. I mean, why is it important that we call Jesus a man? Why is it important that we, we call people what they, what they are biologically? Um, and what does that have to do with, with us as, as embodied people? And as Christians, should we yeah. be engaging in 
Is that a whole different podcast? So, like, I think that this is connected, but like, you know, everything's connected to everything, right? So, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, on one level, I think it's important to recognize that we are not descent agnostics, right? We we don't believe we do believe Jesus was physically in a human body. Yeah. Incidentally, that body was male, right? And it died and rose from the dead, right? right. One of the things I find kind of ironic about um, progressivism is, and I find many ironies in libertarianism and conservatism as well. I'm just going to point out one in progressivism is when we talk about black people, we say black bodies. Hmm. And when we talk about trans people, we talk about internal feelings being the locus of identity. True. Yeah. I can't make heads or tails of that. No. Yeah. Right. Like the, because it, now on one level, like I know what they're doing, like, like black people are saying, um, who cares if you say our spirits are free? What are you doing to us? Right. Right. Like this body that I'm in, like, this is me. Right. And right. like, what are you doing to it? Right. Like, so this idea that like, like slaveholders had that they were taking care of the souls of their slaves, but they were enslaving them. Right. right? They're like, yeah, you like talking about the good you do to my soul while you're, you are controlling and wrecking my body doesn't make any sense. And they are right, right about that. Right? right. Because they are their bodies in a sense, like the mm -hmm. union of their soulishness, who they are immaterially is in full union and should be in like working union with their body, their physical body. Okay. So like you are your body, even mm -hmm. though you're like more than your body. Right? right. So when you define yourself out of relationship to your body, right. That is a problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, and I think therefore it's a brokenness, a disordering or a tragedy mm -hmm. when that's the case. And so, so like, I don't deny that gender dysphoria exists. Yeah. Right. But I do deny that it is um, that we, the way we should look at it is as a kind of diversity of biology well, you as deny opposed it. to a disordering of human teleology, like what we are yeah. created to be. I mean, you would, you would just deny the like affirmation therapy that comes with it, that, that, that we're supposed to affirm To the it. extent to which it's a non-working technology. So yeah. like, like yeah. the fact that like, for example, somebody who's same sex attracted, that if we do X, X therapy on them, that the research that is publicly believed says that it doesn't work. Right. Yeah. The reason to not do a therapy that doesn't work is because it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And because yeah. it can create distress in the person who's doing it. It can probably cause more damage in a lot of And that's ways. true for a lot of our therapies. For example, like 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 uh, cognitive behavioral therapy in a lot of cases doesn't work. It works mm -hmm. with some people, but not with others. Or it works for, while you're in therapy, but the minute you stop therapy, it stops working. Well, that's a yeah. therapy that doesn't work, right? Now, right. kind of behavior works in a lot of cases, but in some cases, great business plan, right? Right. So, like, <laughs> so, like, should we, should we, like, say it's evil, or, or, or like, make it illegal to do CBT in certain cases, right? Hmm. I, I don't know. I, I feel like people should be able to do whatever they want. The issue, the problem with reparative therapy is that in the cases that we have studied in certain ways in the research that's believed, um, there isn't sufficient success to recommend it as a treatment. But that says nothing about whether or not we might have any desire in the long run to produce technologies that do make it possible for people to change their orientations if they wish. Right. So, for example, if progressivism in its secular form is true and we should be transhumanists, that we should be able to transcend the body, 
then we should create technologies that allow heterosexual people to be pansexual so that we can maximally enjoy our sexualities. Right. If that's the truth, mm-hmm. if it's true that we are teleologically created to embody a gender that we're born into, mm. then people who have dysfunction relative to to embodying their physical gender or sex, mm-hmm. then we would want to cure that or heal it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I can understand that, like, if you don't have a technology that does that reliably and then a society says, well, we should we should he- heal the queers mm-hmm. that people who are same sex attracted who are very stable in their same-sex attraction, they're like, wait a second, you're telling me you need to get rid of this in me, but you can't. So basically, like, I'm a, right. I'm like a person you don't approve of in my condition, but we can't change my condition. Like, that sucks. You're saying right? we can't change it that. in the sense of like... I'm saying that the technologies that we have right now, and by yes. that I mean like psychological technologies, like yes, counseling, yeah, way right. we do counseling or drug therapy or whatever, like allele rewriting or whatever that we don't have anything that works that we know right, of. Yes. Like, I but think that some of the, I think some of the public stuff around same sex therapies um, are not really honest. I actually think that there's some of them that work a lot better than others for certain profiles of same sex attracted people. Yeah. But I don't think we have a system that we have methods that work, but right now what we're doing is we're a lot, we're disallowing the creation of such a technology. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what I morally object to. It's, I don't morally object to the idea of saying that a certain kind of therapy doesn't work for people who want it. What I object to is, is that you can't try to develop one, which is what we're doing publicly right now in relationship to same sex attraction. I think that's morally wrong. Well, the reason that's happening is because people think that same, and people in the church think that same sex, sex attraction is something that you're born with. And I, I don't know how I feel about that yet. And so, if you're born with it, then it just it, like it can't change at all, right? Like if, if that's something that's like well, a part all of kinds your of things that we're born with that we change DNA. No, see, people want to make this a biological argument. It's not. It's a moral argument. It's a it's a what you th- it's what you philosophically think a human being is. That's why yeah. we're doing this series on anthropology. Like it comes back to your anthropology. What it do you weird. think a human being is? That's another irony, though. That like you can like, could you can Jesus be- have been non-binary? Could he have said, "I'm non-binary. I'm neither a man nor a woman." No, Jesus could no, not have done right. that and been the truth embodied. Well, he couldn't right. have done it. Yeah, and like Jesus, you're saying, Jesus wasn't non-binary, and the, and yeah. one of the reasons is because that wouldn't have been true. Right, and like you said about it does it also doesn't make sense. It feels like there's two contradicting things. Is that you know one part of the progressive um, group of people in the country will say that um, I mean gay people are born that way, and then. That say, those same people will say that somebody who's born a man was not born that way and can be a woman, and that's that seems to be the 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 confusion here. Like that doesn't make it's any sense. It's a misunderstanding sense. of embodiment. Yeah. Yes, and so yeah. I mean, this is this does get back to Jesus being truly human and fully yeah. human. Is that Jesus entirely and completely embodied his humanity? Right. And th- yeah. I mean, there were like huge disputes in the church about like how complete and total was this? Like maybe Jesus' rational soul was divine, but his physical body was human. And the church condemned that over and over and over again. No. Every part of humanity exists in Jesus the Christ and is in perfect union with itself and each other. And he is divine. It's both not either or. There's no part of the humanity that you take away to put in the God part. Mm-hmm. The two are overlaid upon each other in totality. It's a hundred percent, one hundred percent, and because of that, Jesus had to one hundred percent embody himself mm-hmm. or be embodied, right? Mm-hmm. And he saw that as a good. 
Mm-hmm. And he and he treats humanity as teleological that is designed with a purpose, mm-hmm. with inherent moral responsibility towards certain ends that that mm-hmm. human cre- are created a certain way, ordered to certain ends, and transhumanism, which is the the result of a certain kind of progressive ideology that we make ourselves, we are not discovering what we are, mm-hmm. right? So, like classicalism is the idea it holds the idea that we are. Human beings are a certain thing. We have a nature. We have to discover what that nature is. Mimesis. And then with, within that discoverance, right. right, within that discoverance, there is variation and we can become, but we still become in accord with that nature, right? right? That nature, nature is being perfected by grace to put it in mm-hmm. Catholic terms, right? <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. Modernity says, or you might say hypermodernity or postmodernity says there, there is a certain thing a human being is, but- we can create technologies and by technology, I'm using te- technology in the broadest sense, okay. right? F- like a, f- a philosophical view could be, a, an ideology could be a kind of technology, a, a way of counseling or teaching ourselves could be a technology, yeah. right? There's we can come with the, technologies yeah. to right. transcend our nature, to make it into what we want it to be. We can transcend our humanity. We can be transhumanists, right? And in that sense, LGBTQ ideology is transhumanist. Mm-hmm. It is I myself doesn't have to embody my bodily teleology, like my bodily created purpose and what ends I was created to be ordered to. They can be ordered to something else. Right? Is, this du- and, is this dualism? No, am I thinking of the wrong word? Would it that, is a form of dualism. A form yes. of dualism, yeah. It's a form of dualism. It's not... Separates the body from the spirit and and basically... Yeah, I mean, I think trans... Trans identification is probably the most direct form of dualism yeah. that like okay. I am, I literally can be the opposite of my embodied self. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. It separates yeah. two things that are supposed to be all embodied and encompassing. Like, right. That there can be no separation with, without disassociation. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like, I mean, in a lot of other cases, psychologists would have no problem saying something was disassociative. Right. That the mind was broken. Like, mm-hmm. like if I behave like my seven year old self in a moment yeah. of anxiety, Right. I don't have two selves. I'm dissociated. I'm broken in half inside. Right. Although and have the- you watched TikTok? Like, because like we're getting closer to that. Like, I'm not even making a joke. Like, like we're getting closer to that. Like, well, how, somebody- could, how could that be avoided if we yeah. are publicly celebrating and demanding people publicly, publicly celebrate certain forms of acceptable disassociation? How could we avoid increasing right. human disassociation? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. like for, for real, like if you if you can. Be whoever you want, not relative to your body. Why can't you be more than one person that right. you want to be, not right. relative to your body? Which would have, or like, which would have previously been called, uh, been a, uh, dis, uh, a yeah, multiple disorder. personality, right. like multiple personality disorder. Yeah, right. Why can't that just be who you are? Right. Why are the voices of schizophrenic ears not part of who they quote really are? Right. Right. right? Why is an anore- why is an anorexic's internal view of themselves as fat? Not who they, who, who they really are, right? So, I mean, pe- in, in the trans debate, people on the conservative side have used the, the anorexia thing a lot. Yeah. But it's probably because I think it's a pretty decent metaphor. Yeah. You know, like I mean, anything, you, have a, you have a view yeah. of yourself inside your head that feels right. incredibly real. Yeah. So real that you will die believing it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's not real. Like right. you're starving to death. Yeah. You're wrong. Mm-hmm. And so like we ha- we're going to choose to help you d- work with your mind to conform to reality. Right. right? This mm-hmm. is partly the problem. Now, listen, this is why the, the, this is why whenever Jordan Peterson talks, he says conceptualization, not truth. Like 
It is a hundred percent true that people who are have trans identification conceptualize themselves as women if they're in a male body or males if they're in a female body. And that conceptualization is quote true in the sense that it's real. That it that they do that. It's it's not true in relation to like reality. It's true in relation to what they think. That they just they right, actually it's a conception, think that, right? It's, yeah, it's just that's like how a, their mind conceives it. Yeah, and yeah. that conception <laughs> is real. Yeah. In that sense, it's just as real as their physical body. Mm-hmm. But you see, there's a fallacy there, right? right? Because now you're saying, well, is a conceptualization as real? Like mm-hmm. in a in a like instantiated sense. Like, does it exist as a non-abstract object in reality? Or mm-hmm. is is the sensory perception that is quote truly there? Can it be changed? Is that as real? Right. Or real in the same way as the fact that the person is in a physically male body real. Right. Right. And you see, I think Christianly speaking, hmm. I think the there's see, there's there's no dissociativeness in Jesus like that. Like right. he just he is what he is. He's a human man in, in who is the savior, who is a son of man, who is also God. And he is like he's like living this out in full embodiment. Right. And he's calling us to do so as well. Well, and he called us out the I am, which is like the which doesn't make a lot of sense, but it seems like it pertains to this. <laughs> like like the he says he's the I and am. He like has he the is authority. Yeah. Right. Well, is that is that an authoritative um statement or is it like an embodied state statement as well? Like that he is, like that Christ is what he is. Well, I, it's not I, it would it's not embodied because he's in that he is claiming to be Yahweh, he's claiming to be a disembodied abstract okay. object. So it wouldn't be a yeah. a statement of embodiment, but it would be a statement of existence. Exist- of okay. absolute existence. Yeah. 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 Um, but I think one of the, I think relative to these things that we've been talking about here for a few minutes, I think the m- most fundamental issue is Jesus ref- re- um, continual reference to us having false selves. Mm-hmm. Right. Part of um, expressive individualism, which is at the heart of most of modern progressivism and part of transhumanism, is this idea that like what we feel like we are inside should be expressed without consequence. Mm. And when the minute Jesus says that we have false selves, there is this thing that's called the self that has to die. Hmm. Right. What's he talking about? Right. And what, what qualifies as part of the false self, right? Does it include just our selfishness? Like Mm -hmm. what parts of our selfishness, there's self interestedness. That's good. And there's selfishness. That's bad. Like, so like part, a huge part of Christianity is grappling with the false self that Paul calls the flesh that is called indwelling sin. It's got a bunch of different names, right? But it's this thing inside of us that has to go. So Jesus claims that we basically have at least moral and spiritual dissociation, disassociativeness in us, and probably more than that. And part of sanctification or growth in our spiritual life is to become integrated or integral. That is to be one self who serves the one master who follows him according to his one way, right? And it becomes one. Mm. And that includes becoming fully integrated with our body. Mm. So that, and like, we know this, like as our minds change, our brains rewrite things. Mm-hmm. Like our, even our urges and stuff become habituated to who we're becoming. So our body comes in line with our mind as our mind comes in line with our body. It's a, it's a, like a dual like it's a reciprocating self. Like, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, like yeah. the two are impacting each other, mm-hmm. hopefully 
towards better things, but they also can do it towards worse things, right? Yeah, and that's what makes up when Jesus commands us to not think certain th- and not lust and not hate. Right, like that—that that would be those two things kind of combining as as one. It, right. What and you do is, or what you think is what you do. What you do is what you think. Yeah, and the things that make up our false self, as well as the things that make up the true self, could be talked about as a group of orientations. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. and so the fact that we have any kind of orientation doesn't legitimate the orientation. Yeah. You still have to make a judgment as to whether or not that orientation is part of the false self or the tr- or the true self Jesus is creating. So my desire to be a lecturer, to have sex with every attractive younger woman I ever come in contact with. Yeah. Like that's an orientation I've had for a long time, but I, <laughs> I classify that as part of my false self that has to well, die in Jesus name. Cr- like Christ classifies that as part of your false self and then you obey. And I agree with him. Yeah. You have to agree. So that I, that then his- I do it too. Yeah, then yeah, do I it do it so because he's taught me to do it that way. Yeah. Otherwise, I would just say, well, I'm a product of evolution. I want to yeah. s- spread the sperm, yeah. like my seed around to as spread much as possible. Seed. Why wouldn't I want to have? So I ought to have sex with the maze I can, so mm-hmm. long as it doesn't cost me the other things I'm trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Right. But I don't think that way. Mm-hmm. Or, or I don't think, well, this is my life. I could be whoever I want to be. I don't think that either, because I don't mm-hmm. think that I'm a self that I'm self-creating. I think that I am discovering my nature. And becoming a self in accordance with it, hmm. right? Because that's mm-hmm. how God talks about me as a human being. And so I'm conforming to the likeness of Christ. In mm-hmm. Christianity, that kind of conformity is a good thing, not a bad thing. Right. But conforming yeah. to the quote world in the Bible is a really bad thing. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. C- explain the definition of, because you talked about mimesis. Can you explain is poiesis? Is that how you say it, poiesis? Because I think for me, it was really helpful to understand those two terms and how they relate to exactly what we're talking about as like th- when I read in, in the Carl Truman's book, you know, yeah. I, and when I read that, I, it was kind of just one of those things where, where I read it and I'm like, oh, like, OK, that makes much more sense of a, a lot of different things um, now that I've read these and understand these two definitions. Yeah, I, Andy, I don't think I can produce the definitions of those two and their significance for memory. I don't have the book in front of me. Oh, um, OK. Yeah, I mean, mimesis. I mean, you did explain mimesis. I mean, poiesis isn't poiesis generally just like taking raw material and creating what you want out of it, and yeah, like it's, isn't that what it would be? Yeah, I think so. But yeah. I, that's I, I don't want to. I, mean, I don't want to get. I don't want to define something wrong. Yeah. I'm so prone to mistakes, you know. Yeah. Um. But but yeah, I mean, this distinction between discovering your nature mm-hmm. or constructing yourself is one of the most fundamental questions anybody can ever ask themselves. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And I have lived both of those and I have a very clear view in my mind, which is better, you know, Mm -hmm. and which is because which is more true. Right. And I think that we are, and and also remember that like, it wasn't until like the last 20 minutes of human society that anybody believed that we make ourselves. Yeah. Basically, I mean, Chinese, Japanese, Indian, Eurasian, yeah. African, South America, all societies basically that had any philosophy, wisdom philosophy right. believed that we'd have to discover our nature first mm-hmm. and then through discipline and practice form ourselves out of that nature. Probably because they all existed pre-industrial revolution. Right. And in line with that nature, right? There were no yeah. technologies to change yourself, right? right? There, were, there was only discipline, thought, practice, habit, right? right. And so people are well, how do you do this, right? And so they're like, well, you figure out what you are as a human being. And then you figure out how human beings develop and heal. And then you maximize that healing and development to become who you were meant to be. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's exactly right. 
That's part of natural revelation. You don't have to be a Christian to realize that. Mm -hmm. But if you have a strong enough ideology, and if you deny your responsibility strongly enough, which we are prone to, Romans 1 says, Mm -hmm. then you can convince yourself through idolatry and corruption Mm -hmm. that what you're here to do is to live for yourself and to make yourself from scratch. That's what will make you happy. Yeah. And part of the problem is, is that what people don't understand is that worldliness is making them unhappy. So the reason we're so desperate about being um, expressive individualists is because we live in a society where making increasingly brutal, unhappy, unnatural, and inhuman, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. while we're wealthy and quote successful. Right. So we're, we have all these resources to harm ourselves and we have empty hearts that are longing for something more. And so it's not strange that we would like like grab expressive individualism and write it until it kills us. Did you ever read Fahrenheit 451? Yeah, portions of it. Does that I, they say- made me read it too early. I, they made us read it uh, as a freshman in high school, and that's way too early to read that book, I think. Andrea and I uh, listened to it on the way to Florida last month, and okay. I think it captures this idea, I mean, pretty well in in that like – I mean, they, it's basically about they burn all the books in the society, and if you try to read a book, you can get big trouble, and they can they'll kill right. you basically. And then there's this guy who's called a firefighter, and they change the definition of a firefighter. Firefighters don't burn or like yeah, they start fires. Houses they start books. fires. They burn mm-hmm. books, and so he 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 like takes a book home, and he's got a Bible and all these things, and he, he might have the last Bible, and it, it's just basically like the society without books is just it's so indulged in there in whatever they want. They have these big TV screens that they interact with. That like cover whole, their whole walls. That cover their whole walls. And the and people like, talk to them. Oh my gosh, them. this guy wrote this in the 50s or yeah. 40s or 50s? Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. And, it is. And, it's amazing. It's like 80 years, 80, 70, 80 year old book. And it's like, right. oh. That's what hmm. it gets me going. Cause I'm like, okay. So people say like, we're getting closer to the 1984. And I'm like, I don't know if we're getting closer to that or we're getting closer to the Fahrenheit 451 society um, because yeah. it, it feels like we're going to be indulging in, in all and basically like whatever. If you haven't read the first three pages of Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, you okay. should. Where he, he says there's two great totalitarian, anti-totalitarian authors of the 20th century, Orwell and Huxley. Yeah. Right. Orwell is like Animal Farm. Yeah. And Huxley is Brave New World. Right. In, in 1984. And he said, Orwell said, if we aren't careful, totalitarian powers will take the truth from us and we won't be able to access it. Huxley believed we would we would bury the truth like a needle in a haystack and nobody would want it or be able to find it amidst mm-hmm. all the noise. And he said, this book is about the fact that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It turns out, though, as we look at society right now, we know Huxley is right. The question is, will Orwell be right also? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nobody imagined a world in which they could both be right. But this is part of the problem with literary stuff. When I was when I was in high school, it was the 1990s. Yeah. So communism was just falling. Um, I grew up in my elementary year school years believing I would live in a global <coughs> catastrophe of nuclear war. That really? was my childhood. And so we read anti-totalitarian literature in high school. Yeah. Fahrenheit 451, 1984, those kinds of books. Yeah. I don't think kids are reading those now. I, I think, they're, I, I think yeah. they're reading pro-progressive propaganda mm-hmm. instead of anti-communist propaganda. And I think the anti-communist propaganda is much more important for forming well-structured individuals. The 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 uh, I had to read The Giver and I that that was Yeah, a I had good to read book. that in college because they were already transitioning to that kind of literature. 
What is it, what you would consider that to be more? I guess it is because we just watched the movie. Um, yeah, again, I hate to pick on it because it's written by a pastor's wife. I think. Oh really, Louis um, Lowry or something? I think. That's I think so. maybe I'm maybe I'm confusing that with Bridget Terabithia, but like, yeah. Uh-huh. I, so in one sense, I, in one sense, get the Giver is really interesting because it yeah. it creates a nice totalitarianism. Mm. Right. It's like, cause like, it, it's like, Oh look, this utopian society. Right. But nobody sees color. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they've lost these like enormous things about their humanity and they don't even or know it. Love and emotion. It, right. it, he asked his dad, like, do you love me? And his dad was like, like his mom was like, use your, use precision of language. And he was like, his dad was like, okay, I enjoy you. But like love is like they couldn't comprehend the idea of love or, right. or some of these right. things. And the baby made. they're going to euthanize, like yeah. he's just not sleeping right. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's like, yeah, he's not, he's not ordering his sleep right. We're going to, we're going to like whatever the euphemism they use for murder him. Right. Yeah. And we're going to send him to elsewhere is what they say. Right. And it's kind of like, what? Like right. your baby isn't sleeping right. right. You know, but like that's where you get to. Like if you're wealthy enough, you don't need this baby. You'll just mm-hmm. – someone will have one and it's fine, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways the giver I think is really good in that sense that it paints this kind of like utopian niceness, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. it turns out is inhuman, right? But like the thing is is that the giver is fiction, Yes. And it's fiction that is not written in direct relationship to uh, instantiated human reality. When mm-hmm. when Orwell wrote Animal Farm, he was writing about the way communist so- Russia was, and what and what socialist England was careening towards. But, but there was like a already, concrete historical reality he was writing that in. And I think people think he was that, a socialist. Who Orwell? Yeah, Orwell was a socialist. Yeah, yeah, he was a socialist. So it, he but he, he also hated socialists. <laughs> Right. That's why. Um, that's why. Uh, um, who's the famous psychologist guy we talked about? Um, Jordan, Peterson. Jordan Peterson. Yeah. On his like like books you need to read list is The Road yeah. to Wigan Pier, and he's right. That is the best book by Orwell I've ever read, and it's because he writes it for this uh, for the British Socialist Society. I forget the name of it, but it's like the Socialist Book Club. And in the first half of the book, he does this incredible journalism about what it's like to be a coal miner in North England. And it's mm-hmm. horrible. It is as dehumanizing as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Like including like girls getting pregnant because they're put in beds with their teenage brothers. And if it turns out even if they're brother and sister and there is a like you're not supposed to commit incest. If you put a teenage boy with a teenage girl in the same bed for long enough, they get intimate even yeah. if they're brother and sister. And so yeah. like you get these like incestuous babies and the food is terrible and people will bring like fresh food to the people and they won't eat it because they're in taste for canned food and they won't eat. And then like, he's like, you can just see the degradation. And, and then he talks about like what the, right. And then the second half of the book is why everybody hates socialists. So he's like, basically like, look at how coal miners are treated. We freaking need socialism. And he's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And then he says, now look at how socialists behave. They're ridiculous, terrible. They come up with horrible policies that make things even worse. And he's right. Mm. And that's why Peterson recommends it because he's like, this is the fundamental problem with democratic government is that forms, certain forms of economic lazy fair capitalism will produce inhumanity. And so will socialism. Yeah. And, and like the, the, uh, the easy answer to that would just be like a, um, some sort of restricted ca- capital, so, like a slightly restricted capital capitalist society, which is what we 
somewhat have today. Although yeah. we've gotten we've gotten too in bed with the government. Yeah, or one would argue that that was already happening though. Like the like the coal companies were building houses for these people and so on. But uh, part of what was part of what I oral didn't really get into is the delandedness of English people. It was very difficult. Every hmm. all the land was owned, and nobody was turning any of it loose. Yeah. So the way English English class society worked is it was hard to buy a two acre farm. You just couldn't do it. Sure. You know, and so people were kind of pushed off the land and they were no longer working on the big landed estates and stuff like that. And so it, it, England was changing. And so people didn't have a lot of good economic options if they weren't highly educated and it was happening too fast. So there's, mm-hmm. there's all, and there's, of course, there was this great desire for coal, right? Too. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, but the, the, the point is, is that like, we're, what we're supposed to take from Jesus embodiment and the way he dignifies people, the way he treats them, the mm-hmm. way he is a high priest to them, the way he heals people and cares about like Jesus will heal like people nobody cares about. Right. Like some old woman and some guy who's been crippled for 30 years. He's like, I see this guy and I'm going to heal him. Yeah. Like Jesus and Nate, the way he encompasses and brings in people, the way he serves them, the way he sees everyone, the way their humanity is always in the forefront to him. Yeah. Like this is, he's doing, and he's doing this as a human being, like he's doing it the same way we would in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it's supposed to help us not only connect with him as a high priest, but also connect with him as the one who shows us how to be a human being, which yeah, is what right. Philippians two is all about. Right. right. It says not just that Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. I mean, Hebrews one says that and um, mm-hmm. Colossians one fifteen, second Corinthians four, four to seven. But they, but here it says that he was made in the form of sinful man. That is, he's just like us. He looks mm-hmm. like us. He looks as frail as us so that he could be a sin offering and so that he could show us what it looks like to have the right attitude, mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. real humility to, to take up the work of a human being. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that uh, one important thing about what you're, what you're saying about Jesus and seeing the, the crippled and... It, it seems to me like like one of the most important takeaways from Christ is his perceptiveness. Like uh, that he was very, he was perceiving what was happening around him and noticing it and and taking real, t- taking real. I mean, initiative and just trying to see what was happening around him so that he could help in in um, whatever capacity that he could or that he chose to. Yeah, and it and it feels like that's part of him. Like we can all do, like we can all see these things. Like that's not Jesus being God. That's Jesus being like, we can do that. Like, I I mean, we can't notice everything all the time, but we can notice somebody who's in pain and we can do something about it. And it feels like that's like a good, it might be a good place to, to start. I mean, with just trying to notice more than yourself every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the problems with expressive individualism is we're so busy expressing the idiosyncrasies of ourself that we've made up. We're not connected enough with our universal humanity to see what's going on in other people. Right. Which is super predictable and Mm -hmm. very obvious if you understand yourself as a human being. Right. People talk so much about empathy right now. Right. But the only way to really construct empathy is to be able to accurately predict what's happening in another person. Mm. But they're a human being. Mm -hmm. Right. The more we're transcending our humanity as expressive individualists, the less we actually share securely in common. And the less actual empathy we can create in ourselves for other people, only when we understand ourselves as fundamentally human beings who are embodied, 
and we understand the universal experiences of that in our design and nature, can we then see other people's experience of the inhumanity they're experiencing and really love them and be driven to do something about it, to be empathetic? So in, in that sense, I fear that that certain progressivist ideologies cut off the very root of the tree they're trying to create in mutual mm-hmm. care for others, which is why I think it's doomed. Can I say I, though that I, I, think, I, think, I think certain progressivism yeah, and libertarianism are doomed for other reasons? Yeah, but I think that that all comes down. As I've thought about this, it feels like it all comes down to language <clears throat> and how we talk about things. And if like, uh, gosh, what is the guy? I'm going to get his last name wrong. Ludwig Wittgenstein. That's not how you say it, but he's yeah. In, Ger- in German, W's or V's. So it's Ludwig Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein. You know who he is? Yeah. Yeah, he's like a philosopher. He he studied language and that kind of thing. And just, I mean, I don't know a ton about he made him. Popular but, the quote language games. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and he he talks. I mean, he talks about just how like using our word, like what human beings do to um, interact with each other in language is is kind of like we have to find ways to to um, exchange ideas through using words like if I say ball, maybe you think of a football and I think of a basketball. So I need to be more specific and say you know like soccer ball or something like that right. so that you know what I'm talking about so that we can exchange ideas correctly. I, I do feel like th- this conversation of of um, being a human being and gender and sexuality and all these things in, to some capacity comes down to the language that we choose to use as human beings is that, that there's no other way to exchange ideas and there's no other way to exchange sympathy and empathy. Th- there is other ways in that you can, you can physically exchange these things, but you can't understand somebody else's pain until you can understand their their language to some capacity like i can see somebody with a broken leg and be like that's that's pain but i can't understand somebody who uh, who can't explain to me like that their parents are divorced and that they, you know like right. there's some sort of language barrier that, that we ha- like it, that's and you why also i'm not can't gonna- ask for and receive love unless you right. know yourself enough to know what's even happening in you Right. Like, right, but, I, like there's a lot of especially younger people who have been sort of like infected with this with this like expressive individualism stuff. Yeah. And like they're hurting. You can tell they're hurting. They yes. express that they're hurting, but they actually don't know why they're hurting. Right. Right. They think they do. Like they've had this like explanation. They got off a podcast or something like that. <laughs> and they're like, oh, this is my problem. Right. Oftentimes it's a psychological diagnosis or a like some kind of temperament witchcraft like the Enneagram. And I, I say that, like, I mean, there's some stuff to learn there, but like, you know, I'm, I, like they totalize it. They're like, oh, yeah, this no, is what's I, happening. I have a, yeah. I have this kind of temperament. I have this kind of oh, personality. I'm just, have, a, I'm just a seven and that's just how I am. I'm a seven, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's like, and it's not, it's yeah. not that. And they have no idea. Yeah. Like I, it, it wasn't that long ago. I was talking to a young woman and she was really upset that I had said something in a talk that had actually touched a wound in her that she was denying that she had. Ah. Yeah. And she's like, I'm not upset, but I think this, I was like, you're, you're furious. Yeah. And she's like, no, I'm not, I'm not upset. I was like, listen, right. you can't even be hurt. Right. Right. Until you admit that like I hit a wound. Yeah. And that wound is that you were abandoned by your father and you sure. don't know why. Yeah. And she's like, no, I'm not upset about that. I have a great mom. I have had a great family. I don't need, right. I'm a, I'm a girl. I don't need a dad who needs a dad. Like I'm just like, no, you were abandoned by someone who created you. And that there's a wound in you that's a mile mm-hmm. wide. And the more you deny this, the more pain you're going to feel. And you're not going to know why. And it's mm-hmm. going to wreck you. And she's like, no, you just shouldn't say fathers. You shouldn't refer to fathers like that in your talks. I was like, I'm going to. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because it's true. Mm-hmm. So, and the reason it's supposed to be helpful to you is 
because you're supposed to be able to be honest about your wound. You should have had a father. He should have never abandoned you. He should have been there at all the difficult moments of your life. He had no business taking away your right to know him Mm -hmm. and to be loved and nurtured by him. That should have never happened. And you, you should have been supported by him and strengthened by him and protected by him all the days of your life. Mm-hmm. And until you realize that you have been hurt by that, you're never going to be able to heal in many ways. Mm-hmm. She just wouldn't accept it. Walked away. Thought she understood because she knew better than me because she's her, right? So how could mm-hmm. I know some mm-hmm. other, some white male, how could mm-hmm. I know her hurt better than her? And the answer mm-hmm. is I did. Mm-hmm. I did. Yeah. And, and, and so – it's, it wasn't because she didn't know her, quote, know herself. She spent an enormous amount of time looking inside of herself to understand herself, but because she didn't understand what a human being was and wouldn't listen to Jesus about what one was, mm-hmm. she was completely um, alienated from herself and mm-hmm. couldn't know herself. Do you think another problem, and I know we're two hours in, but I, I think yeah. there's a lot to talk about here. Do you think, and, and we can end it after this, but do you think another problem with that I found in myself that was with my wounds sometimes and and especially before i started really before i started like reading more and trying to like figure things out more about the world i couldn't like i had it in my head what i was frustrated about what i felt i couldn't put it into words because i didn't have the vocab the vocabulary i didn't have the language for it and therefore like when i would try to explain to people like this is how i feel about this thing that it would, it would it always just didn't come out the way that I wanted it to come out. And yeah, if I remember when you were like 19, you would mostly just say, that's stupid. Yeah. Yep. And you're like, that's <laughs> all I can say right now. It's, I yeah, just know it's stupid. It's stupid. And I know that that seems like people are like, well, that's, I mean, that's well, ridiculous. That's stupid, that's yeah. stupid right. <laughs> um, but like, I, I mean, I think more people are like that than than they even understand that, like, um, especially at the younger ages. I think, that, I think I actually heard Nicole Kyle do that. You were like, that's stupid. She's like, you're stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Or that yeah. way of talking about it is stupid. Right. Yeah. No, and I, I, yeah. And I think I think that's correct. And but I, I also think that there's got to be some sort of the language thing to me has, has seemed to be like extremely interesting in that, like, if, if I can't connect with somebody on a language basis. And I believe this about the Bible too. It's difficult to connect on, on, on other things. And this is why it's hard to talk to Christians sometimes about these problems, because like I said earlier, if I say that I'm not going to call a man who thinks that they're a woman, a woman, Christians will say that that's not a loving thing. And that's a language barrier because their definition of what love is, is different than what my definition of what love is. And to be completely honest, (laughs) what the Bible's definition of what love is. And so you have to, there's different words. There's, there's different definitions for the same words is what I mean. There's so many different definitions for love. Love in the Bible is a highly robust concept, right? And it's not particularly accepting. No, like no. it's, it's, it's long suffering. It's accepting. Yeah. Like even accepting is like one of those words that means five different things, right? Yeah. It's incredibly long suffering. Right. Like, like modern acceptance. It's really funny because I have a, I'm thinking of a young person in college right now who is like in a life stage where she's really, really focused on making friends because she just didn't have close friendships in her teen years. And um, she's she's finding culturally when she meets new people, they're very accepting of her, much more accepting than Christian community was. Sure. And then they'll just like drop her like a rock on like a moment's a bad notice. Habit. Oh, yeah. yeah. People just, oh, just yeah. get ghosted. She's yep. like, what's happening? It's like, yeah, that's worldliness. That's what happens, yeah. right? It's like yeah. they're very accepting ideologically. Yeah. But they don't have the capacity to accept you as an embodied human being. 
Yeah, they don't care about you at all. They they, they yeah. will they will drop you so fast, and that it is it's yeah. unbelievable. You're right. like, uh, we had all these fun times together, right. and, and then you're being taught to do it. Like, there's yes. a class at UW right now. There's a girl who said, I was in this class, and we were taught that saying "long time no see" was an anti Native American, an anti First Nation slur. What the f- what? Yeah, the- and so some so the the discussion leader said to these group of freshmen, she said, uh, "What would you do if one of your friends said long time no see?" And this one. Young, this young, young, this one young woman said, well, I'd never speak to him again. And to which I said, if I was in that class, I would have said then I would never under any circumstances want to be your friend. Right. Because I you, would have never spoken you to you in the first place. You don't place. even know what it right. means to be a human being. You have no yeah. idea. And actually this, this one girl that I know, she said, she said, I think that might be a little bit of an overreaction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Never She's like, imagine if you were at a bar and you were drunk and somebody said no time, no long, long time, time no, no see. Yeah. Would you like, and so like she added in like this, like that the person was drunk and they were like, yeah, yeah I mean, I guess then I'd say, right. you know, that really hurt me and you can't say that. And you know, Gosh. but yeah. like, like, no, you, that's not how a human being behaves. Right. right? Like, and so to I teach also would people, love to just understand how that has to, anything to do with the native America. I, that doesn't even make sense. How does long time no see have to do with, because it's, it's like disordered English associated with the way native Americans were portrayed in film and TV for years that they're like, they, their English wasn't so good. And so they would talk like that. And so when you, when you say no long time, long time, no see, you're hearkening back to like this, these like so linguistic things that everybody were put in who comes to America who doesn't speak English correct like if you start yeah. in speaking Spanish and you come to America you're not going to speak good English like it doesn't have to be Native American it be anybody yeah. listen Gosh. Andy everything you do is going to be intersectionally wrong for some reason okay yeah. like if it's not it's Native true. Americans then it's immigrants what's the difference yeah. like you're right. just as evil right yeah so it's like it's just another thing to be offended about right like yeah like, I, know. I, I heard john mccorther say the other day that like now capitalizing black is going to be something to get offended he's like the reason i'm against capitalizing black is because it's like another thing we're all going to have to be offended about right he's like i don't want another thing yeah to be offended about yeah. he, as a black man he said like yeah for god's sakes it's this too is many crazy. things to remember yeah right. <laughs> so anyway yeah but i so okay to come back to just jesus for like the last bit here like i think yeah. it's important to realize jesus is not as when jesus is a human being he is not just a human being to be the perfect revelation of god to humanity mm. right like the way god is showing himself to us he is that but just as much he is showing us what it means to be a human being he's showing us our humanity yeah. so he's showing us god mm-hmm. to humanity mm-hmm. but he's also showing us our humanity mm-hmm. he's showing us what it means to be truly fully completely and perfectly mm-hmm. human yeah. And and in so doing, he is our perfect high priest. Mm-hmm. The only thing he didn't share with you is doing your sins. Mm-hmm. But because he experienced all the same temptations as you, yeah. he has walked with you in all the pain of resisting sin right. and can totally sympathize in the effects of your falling into it, right. including being willing to pay every price that is paying way more for your sins than you ever right. did. If you're like, well, he right. didn't, he didn't suffer like I did in my sins. Oh, he did. He <laughs> suffered way more than you for yeah. your sins. Right. And right. he was as much tempted as you in your sins. Yeah. He understands. And yeah. I think if you can really get that, right. Jesus can be this close and personal spiritual confidant, friend and companion in his being, in his resurrected self, in the presence of the spirit in a way that's deeply helpful and moving to you. And he'll help you learn how to embody your humanity in all these other ways that we talked about that are very difficult right now. Right. No, I, yeah, I think so. And we're two hours and six minutes into this. Um, 
that was meant to be my swan song. That little that, that was there. that was the last thing. Okay, so I mean, I think there's a million things to talk about here, but yeah, and we could probably keep talking forever. But that seems to be like a good place to end it. Um, yeah, I'm sure we'll have another podcast next week. I think next week's one is on uh, why is the image of why is our image bound to sanctification, and so be on the lookout for that. I don't, I don't even know the answer to that. I don't, I don't know where. And we're I think we've go got some that. exciting interviews over the next few weeks that we're going to do, but it'll be probably a month or so before those come out. Yeah, those will be fun. Um, there's, there's a lot of new stuff, and then we're going to do a bonus episode on science and Christianity and that kind of thing. So be on the lookout for that. But um, yeah, if you're listening to this and you enjoyed, make sure you like, subscribe, follow, share this with your friends, and go to www.optivenetwork.com and you can see some of our articles and different things that we have there. Thanks for listening and we'll see you guys in the next one. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like those. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thank you for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip. Thank you.